And we are live. Welcome back to Growing with My Fellow Growers. This is at Jack Greenstock. I will be hosting this week for Cheap Home Grow. And I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to my panel members, starting with Dr. MJ. Hey, I don't usually get to go first. Yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Uh, we publish articles on the science and practice of growing cannabis. So come on over and, and uh, check us out. I'm looking forward to the show today. Thank you for joining us. And next up, we have the American one. Oh, I thought you were going to save the best for last, but since you called on me, um, I'm the American one. You can find me on YouTube and IG, um, and I'm glad to be here tonight. We're glad to have you. Shout out to Small Tubes, Misty's Nugs, and Farmer Pete in the chat so far. Next up, we got our next panel member is Spartan Grown. What's up, everybody? I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, or that's my personal grow, or you can find... Um, my work grow at Mitten Canico on Instagram also or all over YouTube. Next I just up, say that because I don't want to list every fucking show. <laughs> you really are on a bunch of them. I mean, it, it makes it shorter for everybody. And I think a lot of people I see them in the, in all of those chats. So like they may actually know most of the shows that you're at. So yeah. Yeah. I, I respect that. Next up, we got uh, Brandon. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm good. Just chilling. Uh, I haven't been here uh, in a couple of weeks, but I got some free time. So happy to be here. If you guys are interested in finding my account, you can find me at rust.brandon on Instagram. I'm the owner of Bokashi Earthworks, and you can find a link to that page in my bio, as well as the, the uh, company Majestic Craft Cannabis that I cultivate for. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Matthew, did I introduce you yet? No, you got all the other people first, which is totally fine by me. I'm changing it up. I'm, I'm bouncing around, giving people new opportunities. We're all complaining about our order. I don't know. I think we must have fallen into some pattern that nobody realized. I have no problem with it. I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'll am i just go then. I'm the resident IPM specialist, integrated pest management, Matthew Gates. You can find me and my content, educational content about pests and mitigation and agriculture on YouTube channel Zenthanol and Instagram uh, account at Sync Angel, which you can see hopefully on my profile picture in the video. All right, well next, I just wanna shout out a few more chat members. We got Sour Diesel Tangi, Percy's Grow Room, uh, Big Jar Rose and Felix, thank you all for coming. Uh, we've got a few more panel members that I'm gonna go through and uh, introduce. We got Noah the Grower, go ahead and introduce yourself. How's it going, everybody? Yeah, I'm Noah the Grower with two E's from Instagram. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, I hope we'll get to hear some more from you this week because some weeks you're extremely quiet. But last and certainly not least, one I'm very excited, we finally got him through. The Zoom couldn't hold us down this week, everybody. We got predicative breeding back on the panel. I'm very excited. Go ahead, Kyle. Introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, because it's been some issues, but I'm happy to be here. Uh, if anyone wants to find my work, uh, you can find me at Predicative Breeding on Instagram and Twitter or Kyle Breeder on Facebook. Basically, I mainly deal with uh, plants that aren't sensitive to hermaphrodism and make seeds with those. If anyone's looking for seeds, uh, pbreeding.com. Uh, thanks, Jack, for hosting tonight. I appreciate it. I'm always happy to step in, and I think this is going to be more of a regular thing where either myself or one of the panel members hosts. I think Shane has uh, enjoyed our hosting and a lot of nights he won't be able to make it so 
getting a little bit of feedback, but uh, yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of the panel members host and, and we'll do a little sort of a round robin panel members hosting each week and uh, we'll go from there. But I just wanted to send my best wishes to everybody. Uh, I know around the United States, there's some stuff going on and we just want to wish everybody safety wherever they're at. Um, as far as it relates to cannabis, there has been some protests in relation to uh, the death of a gentleman who died in police custody. And um, can somebody fill in his name for me? Because I'm totally blanking right now. George Floyd. George Floyd. And that has sparked protests all around the United States. And um, in regards to cannabis, I saw at least recently some videos somebody mentioned before we came on live that like places like MedMen had been broken into. And I saw a video of the cookies dispensary being broken into as well. So I just want to uh, wish everybody out there well and, and hope that they're safe and secure. And um, if they are partaking in protests, they're doing so peacefully and uh, not partaking in the violence and uh, breaking a property because I think oftentimes when you're frustrated and you've been cooped up and forced to be in quarantine for a while, people are outraged for a number of reasons and they want to lash out. But in times like this, I think it's important that we unify and come together and um, stay peaceful. And the cannabis community, I think, is very good at doing that. And I just wanted to put that out there. I guess I'd just like to echo that similar sentiment about staying safe and you know, uh, self-reliance is a big um, tenet of, 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 of many disciplines. And especially in this sort of situation, I think people should be um, focusing on that as much as possible. Uh, if, you, if you're protesting, if you're trying to stay away from the conflict, one of the best things you can do to keep yourself safe is just, just simply not uh, go into areas where you're not prepared. Um, simply put, uh, evading situations that are dangerous is much better than going into a situation with gear or some sort of preparation like that, unless you are in fact prepared to do such a thing. Hopefully that wasn't too inarticulate. No, no, I, yeah, I, I agree I, with what you I said. Think the, I think the best way to fight back against the system is, is for you know, people to organize. Self-sufficiency self is huge. If you're not giving money to huge corporations that don't have your best interests or the people's interests at heart, um, and you're producing your own food at home, raising chickens, doing all the little stuff to where um, you don't have to support that, you know, changing your shopping habits and the way that you consume, I think that's the best way to really fight back because it's up to us as to take responsibility for our own actions, our own behaviors, our own the way that we consume and our own perceptions. And I think those things really um need to be taken into consideration as we kind of move forward because there's so much madness going on and I think that to have a real peace of mind for myself is having that self-sufficiency and being able to know that I can be self-reliant and not have to rely on you know government or corporations for the things that I need grow your own man grow your own food grow your own pot try and be self-sufficient I agree with everything about that Support your local farmer because if not, one day you're going to wake up and he ain't going to be there no more. I couldn't agree more. I keep it local. If you can't do everything on your own, there's a lot of people around you that are probably growing awesome, clean, healthy food. And uh, I think cannabis is one thing that most people, especially in 2020, uh, it's easier than ever to cultivate your own cannabis. There's more resources and information and access to things that we never had access to five or even 10 years ago. 
So there's no better time than now to start. And we've got panels like this where you've got a sort of murderer's row, as some have described it, of awesome growers and people that are uh, in their specialty. So speaking of that, I want to give a shout out to the chat to maybe throw some questions our way. If you've got anything pest management related that you've been wondering about, you can ask uh, Matthew Gates. You can tag at Cheap Home Grow and I'll see all of them because I got the live chat up on screen so I can actually see it today. Percy's Grow Room says, the man himself, good evening, Spartan Grown. What's in the jars this evening, everyone? And we can go to Spartan first. Uh, right now, I'm actually trimming up some Spartan glue, but I got all kinds of stuff in the jars. But, you know, this is untrimmed. I guess I could grab a trimmed one. How is the uh, smell on that Spartan glue? I know it changes harvest to harvest. What are you getting on the, this this run? She's just normal. Just usually the the regular, the the the... The base smell, I guess I'll call it, is always the same, but sometimes I'll get weird, subtle things in the background, and that's where I get the differences. Where sometimes I'll get a, rarely I'll get a lemon, um, but uh, it's mostly just mostly gas. I mean, it's mostly just a gassy strain to me. When I smoke it, it's just to me, I just taste straight gas mostly. <laughs> I can't. It overpowers everything else. So it's like those little subtle ones, like the lemon or whatever, they'll come in at the end on the exhale, and um, I haven't smoked this yet, so I couldn't tell you. I'm, I'm still trimming it up, but uh, I'll well, I guess before the show's over. <laughs> what was that, Matthew? I said, well, I guess you know what you need to do then. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a good idea to uh, add well, everything. I didn't have a cookie yet, too. I have to start with a 150-milligram cookie, and then I'll start smoking after that. Spartan hot takes. We should do that. We should have a little... Few few minute clips or second clips, just a Spartan throwing a big cookie in his mouth. He's like, "This is the perfect way to start a podcast." 150 milligrams, and then like cut to him, 10 minutes later taking a big old puff off of a bubbler, then yeah. smoking a joint. Five minutes later, if if you showed me doing that, like 60 minutes later, you'd show me asleep on the couch. I think if uh, ate enough edible, though, I don't know how he's sitting there eating an edible on his way into what like four or five hours of podcasting. But honestly, well, the thing is, you don't have to be concerned, Dr. MJ, because I have another one for the next show. So, Oh, good. good. That'll, that'll, that'll keep be okay. you going if you, if you, <laughs> you yeah. pay off from the first one. That's awesome, man. Yeah, no, it just, it would knock me out. It would, it would put me down probably, maybe not 150, but it seems that if it does anything, it just makes me tired. Well, I am just, if it makes you feel better, I'm just approximating on the strength because I'm just going by the way it hits me. Yeah. I had... Late um, at work, I've had I don't I totally don't respect edibles at dispensaries or provisioning centers like they call them here because I don't know if they're making them with distillate or what it is, but it's not even close to the same high. For example, at work they brought me a he had a buddy that was making Twix bars, and this was from dispensary packaged and everything, two hundred milligrams. I ate them both, and they looked at me like I was crazy, but it didn't hit me any stronger than my cookie. Yeah, so, I don't know. There's definitely some issues because I've had legally tested like a 500 milligram and a 1000 milligram from a company called Corova and I didn't have any effect at all. And I know that it was in there. Then I had a 250 milligram moon bar where I think it was more of like a, I don't know if they use RSO or something more full spectrum than like a distillate, but that 250 would get me an amazing, amazing, super potent effect for like several, like six to eight hours. I'd just be feeling intense, intense high. <laughs> so, uh, it's really interesting to see like the, the dosage. And I think that we still got a long way to come with the testing, I guess is difficult with that because testing a chocolate is different than testing a gummy is different than testing a drink. And um, 
I guess the testing yeah. hasn't gotten. I also think it's where, hard yeah. with with baked goods in particular, um, other things like that that will just vary from one to the other. I mean, you're going to test one, you're going to run some sort of, you know, sample batch or whatever, get tested, but then you're running additional batches out of that. And there can be variation. No, well, girl, what you got time. over there? As I say, you know, at the same I... time, is absorption, how, how, how your body absorbs food and how it processes food makes a huge difference too. Yep. What else you have in your stomach at the time and what mood you're in, um, what you're prepared for sort of going into it. There's been some interesting studies on how alcohol affects you very differently based on the mood you have when you start drinking. The same sort of glass of wine can either um, be a sedative effect if you're expecting it to be a sedative. Sort of at the end of the night, you drink a glass of wine to sort of like calm down. Um, and it can be in a, a big upper if you like drink it on your way out to a party or like as you're going out to do something like that. So your mental expectations for cannabis, I think, will affect the way that it, it interacts with you as well. I got two um, quick questions from the chat. Looks like now three. Oh, no, that's just a confirmation. Yeah, I see a few of them, too. Yeah. So G asks, I got stink bugs or at least one. How do I prevent them? Um, and I asked if you knew or if they knew what they were and they did not tell me or it's red maybe i'm not sure they're not sure i would just say that um just generally speaking stink bugs can be sort of innocuous in in cannabis and other crops they can be way more problematic at least in my experience uh, your mileage may vary and I, we have an international audience so it's kind of hard to make vast generalizations about such a sort of um, all-encompassing group of insects but if you're anything like me you're probably getting uh, the brown marmorade stink bug which is an exotic from to USA and it's very 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 pestiferous and honestly if you only have a few then I would just manually kill them in a home grow situation and try to keep them from being able to enter into your grow space as much as possible sometimes something as simple as um like sealing up your doors and windows and that sort of a thing can do a ton of um, help. A lot of stink bugs go into houses during um, the changing of temperature through the seasons because they're looking for a nice place to kind of uh, hibernate or at least exist that's hotter and houses tend to be that way. Um, the second question is uh, Marron biological cells regalia and venerate these both trigger an immune response in the plant. Would that play a role in the end flavor? And I would say almost assuredly yes, but I wouldn't be able to tell you how or why. Uh, it would depend on what aspects of the immune system and to what level we, uh, are affected. And that's going to be cultivar dependent, dose dependent, um, and that sort of a thing. But a lot of immune response does relate to things like terpene production, cannabinoid production, trichome uh, the physical trichrome structure production and a bunch of other really sort of nuanced immune responses. But does the panel have anything about that? Just wanted to say, I think you handled those questions very well. And Noah the Groa um, for a second was showing some stuff off there. And I didn't know if maybe he wanted to describe what he was showing there. And then I also had a few more questions in the chat that we could maybe jump to unless anybody else has something to add about Dr. Er uh, Matthew's comments there. I just yeah, want to add some, uh, oh, go some ahead, overflow and uh, some platinum Girl Scout, some hazmat OG stuff that I've been kind of drying and stuff. I posted a little bit of it on Instagram of the overflow and I got some new stuff, uh, some 
a Sherbert Oak clone, which is Dosey Dose crossed with some Sherbert. I got uh, LA Kush Cake. I got a, a few new strains that I'm pretty excited about. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. What were you going to say, Spartan? I was just going to say my mind actually, going back to what Zenthanol was talking about, um, it actually works differently than the person who asked the question because they were in essence saying, is it going to change my turf profile to get this immune response? But you have to remember that um, terpenes, for example, or cannabinoids, those are all almost think of them as plant defense mechanisms in a way. You know, they're using those um, to try to repel pests to begin with. So if you're using something to make the plant think that there are pests present, I would think that that's probably a positive uh, change rather than a negative one. That's all I was just trying to say. That's an interesting thought on it for sure. And I do know that some terpenes are actually to attract pollinators and things like that as well. So there's a, a range of different things. And I do agree that I think whatever you spray on the plant is likely going to have an impact on the terpene profile at the end. I don't know how or which way it's going to be impacted, but I think that that studies need to be done to see exactly like one clone versus another clone. One's treated and one's not. And you look at the final test results and that's going to be the only way that you'll actually be able to tell because uh, otherwise we're all just sort of speculating and that's totally fine, but uh, it's really nice when you get the data. And we also have a question from Black Ops Garden, who is a longtime follower of the show. They tag us in a lot of their posts and I, at least I see their garden pretty often on Instagram. Uh, so it's looking good over there. Keep it up. But Black Ops asks, taking successful cuts, so many people struggle with it big time. So I think they're asking, does the panel have advice for successfully taking clones? And uh, I think I'll give this one to Brandon first. Yeah, so I've got like, I just took over 2,000 clones yesterday and today, and I'm still working on it. I've only gotten three of my tables cloned, four of my tables cloned out of 10. Um, so this is what I do and I have amazing results. Uh, I get yeah, at least 90% of the cuts root. Uh, I never, i never really have a problem. The ones that don't, it's usually because they weren't firm inside of the root plug, um, at the base. Um, so what I do is I fill up a five gallon bucket with, uh, the RO water that I use at my facility. And then I add uh, the amazing Dr. Enzymes in there. And then what I'll do is I'll just go and prune up all the, all the, material that I want off my plant and I will cut it and I'll throw everything in the bucket with the enzymes and I, I let the clones soak in there while I'm taking all the cuts and uh, once I have all my cuts prepared and they're all cut um, I just I don't use anything except water I don't use rooting hormone I don't use aloe vera I don't use anything at all I just have a pH like about six I think the RO water is about 6.3 or 6.4. I soak my plugs in there. Um, after they've been sitting in the enzymes, I just put them right into the plugs. I make sure that the stem what is What kind secure. of plug? Uh, I use the root rot, riot plugs. They're like, a, I think that's a peat plug. Yeah, it's NASA mistaken. developed them. It's the same thing, I think, as the rapid rooter, same product. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing as a rapid rooter. So um, I like those because they decompose in my soil systems. Um, I don't use any rock wool or anything that's, uh, you know, any, anything in like kind of inor inorganic as far as that goes, but it's real simple. I mean, I just soak my clones, but the th but here's the thing too, you, you want to clone off of healthy plants because if you clone off of plants that are unhealthy or diseased or weak, 
that's where I, I think most of the, the problems come in because they're already, if you're taking something that's deficient or that's imbalanced as far as its um, nutrients and maybe the hormones inside of its uh, tissue, it's going to struggle. Um, and then having the optimal, optimal conditions for the rooting, because I, I use domes because my bedroom is not uh, where, where my, um, where I start all of my, my uh, clones. It's not super, super humid. So I keep domes on there. Um, and I, I don't, I don't have any problems as long as I uh, do the enzyme treatment. That sounds like it's a pretty successful method for you. I just wanted to make a small clarification. Although it's not often fed organically, rock wool is technically organic. It's just spun rock, and rock is an organic material. So uh, it won't decompose in your soil, though. So I do get where you're going with that. And, uh, isn't, isn't rock wool made out of fiberglass? What was that? I think rock I heard uh, Brandon, I didn't hear Matthew. Oh, I just isn't rock literally inorganic? I'm just being pedantic. Is it? I don't know. Is there? I don't know. Is it a carbon thing? Organic is carbon and rock. Different things in different contexts. <laughs> this uh, is I true. Think is, this I is think it's more <laughs> organic agriculture. I don't think it's considered um, a, a, a <laughs> I, yes conventional input or whatever um, for organic agriculture. But I, that, that sort of brings up some of the inconsistencies with the word sort of organic and how it's used in various contexts. Definitely agree with that. I Mark, do you have any thoughts on clones? Sorry, Tao. Go ahead, Tao. I was just joking. I'm on Sink Angel to be my lawyer. It's all in the words. I had hey, a couple of things to say. I had a couple of uh, tips specifically just about taking cuttings. Um, about that question was about sort of the taking cuttings part. Um, three tips. Older, lower branches are easier to clone than younger growth. Um, to make a diagonal cut through the stalk or through the branch as you're cutting it, um, and to cut ideally right through a node. Um, there's sort of a, more horm hormones in the nodes themselves, and so that helps to get the rooting process started faster. So those three things just about taking the actual cuttings. Yeah, I agree with that. Um... I don't know about the older growth. I like the bottom thing. I, I, I think you could go too far, get too woody there. Um, another thing I like to do is sometimes scrape off a little bit of the bottom membrane. Um, another thing I also like to do is if, if I'm able, I like to take more than I need. That way I can cull a few out. Yeah, you know, just in case you're going to have, like let's say you have a really good strain you want, you want two clones take four with the ideal that you're going to throw two away and keep the two healthiest ones. Um, I agree. You don't need any root hormones. Those rapid river things, the root rides, those are all good. You can also use the, like the permaclone things and get like a, you know, like an aeroponic cloner. There's a lot of different tricks and tips you can use to using clones. And um, once you get something figured out, I always tell people to just kind of roll with it. I like that. Stick with your process. What works best for you? Spartan, uh, I know you take a lot of clones at work and at home. What do you like to do for your clones? Uh, I didn't really have much more than what everybody else was doing. I do pretty much all of that. So um, we're still doing Rockwell, or not Rock. we're still doing Root Riot Cubes and Clone Domes even at work. Um, at work when it's uh, a lot of cuts, we'll take one trick that we'll do to buy us time sometimes is we'll go ahead and take the cuts and put them in just a solo cup of water. 
and they can chill like that for, I mean, as long as you keep topping off the water every day, you could, you could, uh, to reintroduce oxygen into the water. Um, you can get away with that for weeks and then plug them if you want to. Like if you're like for us, if our clone dorms are full, we're waiting for them to root. And when we're taking clones behind it, that's what we'll do to give us time instead of buying a whole nother set of clone domes. It's just easier to do it like that. I've actually seen people get roots doing that. Just like oh, yeah, it sit sure. in a cup in enough time. It'll actually throw roots even in just a cup of water. If the water is refreshed each day. And it's gonna, yeah. Off. It's going to take more time, but it'll happen. Yeah. Just make sure you that's change a, that water. That's a good strategy. Whenever you're cutting a lot of cuttings, um, it, sort of all in one go, you should have a little cup of water to be placing the cuttings in that prevents air embolisms, which can prevent the roots from being able to run. So you don't want air to be able to get in or have access to Air is really the enemy in, in a lot of these things with gardening. I actually... I was just going to say that. I got a tip from somebody to let them soak overnight. So I'd take the cut at night, throw them in a cup, and just let them sit overnight, and then I'd plug it the next day. And that was the... In my most current home grow, like the first time I had successful rooted cuttings using the rapid rooters, because I've actually always used the aeroponic style cloning. And that's what I've gone back to now. Uh, it works for me on small scale. I know that there's some problems with it. And it has some susceptibilities to like pathogens and things. If there's a pathogen on one, it can share it across all the root zones of everything in that cloner, et cetera, et cetera. If power goes out, you're kind of in bad luck if you don't get there soon enough uh, or if the water is too low. And there's a number of issues with them. But like Noah said earlier, go with what works for you. And, and that's what works for me. So uh, I would also say that I've taken cuts off the very tip top of the plant, literally like when I topped it. And I've also taken the lowest, most woody part of the plant and successfully rooted both. And they've both grown out to be wonderful plants. So I think uh, both can definitely work. And I think they have maybe different rooting times or uh, different benefits like being more woody or being more vigorous and things like that. So there's uh, definitely a good side to each option, I think. And um, cloning is definitely a fun I've found I've found that because I've taken them from, from lowers, uppers. All, I mean, you, our mother plants, we usually will you know, sometimes our cloning kills them because we're just taking all the cuts we need and then we'll reset it with the, you know, we take an extra clone for another mother plant. But, um, so I've taken them from all over the plant and honestly, the best, fastest rooting clones are always the apical meristems, uh, in my opinion, from what I've seen in my experience. So the top of the plant, um, you can take them from the bottoms for sure. And those, their root, they just root slower. And I don't know. They're not the less vigorous. I think. I think the best vigorous cuts always come from the top, at least nine out of ten times, in my experience. Yeah, it, I think um, a lot of factors go into it, but I think that sounds like a pretty accurate thing. And to move on from the cloning topic a little bit, and to bring Kyle into the mix, we have a question from Cade Armstrong, a very dedicated listener to many of the different panels that I've seen and been on and uh, been a part of. She asks, "I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about breeding, but what?" What's your thoughts on people using reversed females versus using a male? So I wanted to toss that to our breeding uh, member of the panel. So Kyle, what do you think? For me, it's uh, I'd say it's just you can get a lot more material in a short amount of time. Um, obviously, with males, you have to abs now so what people are doing is grow out a bunch of males taking samples studying men seeing which cultivar has the best number and you're sort of um, coordinating yeah you're you're sort of <laughs> chopping in and out can you maybe move to somewhere that you might have a little bit better connection i don't know if you're calling if you're on your phone or not 
Is that better? Yeah, actually a lot better. All right. Yeah, so uh, I don't know how where I got really cut off, but basically what people are doing, uh, to answer the specific question, I think females are, it's just feminizing seeds, you're able to achieve the end game a lot faster in my, for at least for what I'm doing and in, that's just my opinion. Um, you know, so with males, you don't really know what they're, they have to offer. So what people are doing or breeders that do use males, uh, they're taking leaf samples and then getting them sent in and whichever leaf sample has the highest numbers on it, they'll use that male to pollinate the females and then hope that with the traits that they're looking for come forward. Um, but for me, it just takes too many cycles to do that. Um, when I could just take a female, I see your characteristics, I see your color, I see your calyx production, I know what her, her terpenes are like, I know what her stature like, her, her flower structure is like, and I could just take that and basically put that onto something else that I'm looking for. So it just, it just cuts time down dramatically. Um, and uh, it's a hard process, man. It's really time consuming and it, uh, some plants don't uh, throw pollen and it, it's, it's frustrating. So you kind of have to use them as the receiver versus the, the donor, but um, it's just easier, it's faster, it's more efficient. And uh, I mean, it's just a, it's just a beautiful process. I don't know if that really answered the question. No, I think it did for, in, in your perspective, you like to use the female. And I think a lot of breeders these days, and we're seeing a lot more feminized seed, and I think a lot more being done well, um, especially like in your case, trying to push as much as you can to test them in, in stressful environments to make sure that you're not going to have high levels of hermaphrodism. So that's the number one complaint I've actually seen about feminized seed, seeds. And the number one worry I see with people that haven't grown feminized seed, the one thing I will say um, from a regular breeder's perspective, um, and I've just very, very recently started dipping my toe into the breeding, so I'm no expert in this by any means, but I've listened to uh, people that are much more knowledgeable than myself, like Adam at 2020 Mendocino. He's been a very generous member on the Breeders Collective. If you haven't listened to those panels, they've been pretty informative with Kyle as well and a few other breeders, but him as well as, uh, and he does feminize seeds as well. But uh, Subcool is another breeder that talked about maybe some of the benefits of regs. And Kevin McKernan, I think, has made a post recently about finding within the male that there are actually some resistance genes that are passed on to the offspring. And I don't know what they are linked to, but there is like a number of traits that are actually 100% definitively linked to the male parent in the breeding process. We always grow females for production value anyway. So if there really are traits that are sort of unique to the the Y chromosome, they wouldn't be present in the the production plants that we grow. Um, just sort of a note from other forms of breeding, selfing plants is you need to be able to take a female and uh, produce pollen from it in order to self cannabis plants. Um, so in order to do back cross breeding and stabilize parent lines, um, that's a technique that's used. Um, you know, if I was breeding for new traits, I'd probably go with, with male-female breeding, but um, I can understand sort of some of the points that Kyle's talking about in terms of being able to select aspects of the, the sort of flower, those characteristics. The one thing uh, I, I just to wanted say... to point out that most of the time that we do this, that we sort of reverse a, a plant um, to produce pollen from a female plant, that's used for back cross breeding so that that plant can pollinate itself and eventually increase the homozygosity of the, the genetic profile to be used as a parent plant in hybrid breeding. I definitely think it's a, one of the fastest way probably in cannabis right now to get to homozygosity. 
is through selfing. With um, any plant, yeah, that's how it's done. Um, it usually takes at least seven generations of self and you can get back a plant back to homozygosity. It's tougher when you have to do it with back cross breeding um, as opposed to having a, a dioecious plant, but yeah. I think that they're, Brandon, are you trying to say something? Or oh, uh, I'm working, yeah, I'm working on a project right now. I chose, so I've done in, I've done both uh, methods of uh, breeding, doing the Soma style rosilization is what it was called. That's the way that I learned um, because we didn't keep, uh, we never kept male plants, right? We always cloned from elite stock. So um, if we ever had a late stage for me, I would oftentimes collect those until I had enough of them in a little container and then I'd grab a, I'd bust them open, grab a little uh, Q-tip and then cross what I wanted to get. And just like the, the two panel members said, when you do a, uh, a selfing, uh, you get more of the characteristics that you were originally looking for or that I was originally looking for. Um, and then using a male is much um, more work. The uh, Russian Land Race Gorilla Glue Project, uh, I've had to do, uh, this is, I, I've already crossed it three times. So I did the Russian into the glue, then I um, took a male, did it again, and I crossed that into a male from the second generation cross it into the gorilla glue again and i'm starting to get more of the glue traits hopefully with a different cannabinoid profile um, but i'm also doing like uh uh my limerilla project with the gorilla glue black lime reserve that was um that was an s s1 basically so it had two female mothers um so they pollinated each other and they pollinated the self and I had to go through the different phenos and pick out which was glue self which was black lime self and then which was the combination of both um, and then I had to do selection on that to further but I'm going to be using um, a male that I selected from the lime one lime one grape soda skunk which is the someone has some of the genetics of the parents of the black lime reserve in it and I'm going to outcross the the limerilla so I can pick a a breeding male to then back cross into it. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is just simply so I can have regular seeds for that variety. Um, this will allow me to open up the genetic diversity um, so I can kind of play around with all the different uh, terpene profiles that I've seen expressed. And I just wanna kind of open that up and then see uh, and then do further selections because this is like the variety that I wanna continue running for until I get bored with it, which probably won't happen. But um, there are different profiles that I get out of it. So I want to be able to take it in those different, in those different directions. So I can say this is the, the one direction. This is the second direction. This is the third direction that I wanted to show, you know, showcase for this particular line. So do you have any plans of like releasing the seed or are you just doing it for yourself? And do you um, prefer the feminized style still or... Do you have any plans of using regular? Because I know you were talking about the grape soda skunk where there's some regs or males, I should say. Yeah, it's a, it's going to be, I, I have my home growth set up now and I have my six plants. I have a Gorilla Glue 4. I have the Silverback, which is Gorilla Glue 4 Backcross. I have the Limerilla 31, the Death Breath Cut, and I have a TK G13. Um, and then I have the... Uh, Lime one, lime one, male. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pollinate all of those. It sounds like you're gonna have a lot of fun to uh, search through 
Uh, one of my favorite things about regular seeds is that you, if you really like a line, um, Kyle was talking a little earlier, you might not know what the male is going to pass, but like oftentimes I'll grow out regular seeds and then keep a stash of them like and not pop them. And then Brandon, I think we're getting some feedback from you. Um, but if you don't pop like say five or 10 seeds, then out of the five or 10 that you pop, you find a few females that you really like the characteristics of them. And you're like, well, this cross, whatever it is, call it a strawberry banana or something. Say you really like that strawberry banana and then you pop it and you get a strawberry banana male, even though you don't know a hundred percent that male is going to pass the similar characteristic of the female that you might've found. You have at least some possibility that it's sharing that same genetic code as something that you like the female version of. So if you pollinate it, oftentimes they do work well together and you can run the offspring and, and see if you like it. And if you don't, you can get rid of them. You know, if it doesn't benefit or if it doesn't get better than the generation past, a lot of breeders say, then you should throw it out. Some people try and work it and make it better or select for certain things. But uh, I think that it's a lot of fun to breed your own. And there's definitely something cool about reg regular seed because certain people in the chat are even talking about not being able to get access to STS or colloidal silver or ways to reverse their plant um, like through a chemical fashion. For them, I would recommend what Brandon was talking about earlier, that rotalization, uh, soma seeds made kind of popular. You run your plant way, way past harvest and a lot of plants will throw pollen sacks. And if they didn't, he would actually take a lighter into the grow room and he'd light the lighter like a few centimeters away or inches away from the plant and stress it out. And then a few days later, that plant would oftentimes throw pollen sacks and herm. And you take just that little bit of pollen and use it to make seeds with. I actually have an old, uh, like 1969 uh, recipe on how to make your female plants make male flowers by altering the light cycles. I'll see if I can find it. I'll put it in chat. Yeah. So a lot of the people that criticize feminized seed would talk about why they didn't like it because oftentimes they hermaphrodite. And in the early 90s, a lot of the Dutch seed banks, that's how they got their female cannabis seeds was they would basically go in the middle of the night cycle and interrupt the light cycle. And oftentimes cannabis plants will hermaphrodite if you interrupt the dark cycle because it's a, you know, that's a very sensitive time for that plant. And if you interrupt it, it often can create hormonal issues that lead to hermaphrodite. And if you breed with hermaphrodites, then you're going to get hermaphrodites in the offspring. Some plants don't hermy when you interrupt the light cycle. Some plants are actually resistant to that, but they weren't breeding with those plants. Certain people that are using STS have done testing to see like if the dark cycle gets interrupted and these plants don't herm and I reverse those plants, then those are maybe more likely to have stable offspring and stable by stable, I mean, not having hermy tendencies if there's any sort of light cycle issue or stress or whatever it is. Yeah, that's a good point. You want your females to be hard to produce pollen, right? Um, if it's really easy to produce pollen from a female, then that's in the genetics of that strain or of that particular individual. And it will always be likely to hermaphrodite. I mean, normally we don't want females to produce pollen. So on those rare occasions for breeding purposes, when you do, you kind of want it to be difficult. You don't want to just do it by interrupting the light cycle a few nights in a row, like you're talking about, John. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, interesting note. Um, I usually bring this up, but I'll bring it up again. Um, the entire Cannabaceae family is sort of weird and unique in that um, different species uh, or, or, or different genera 
Some of them are uh, monaceous, dioecious, or both, just like cannabis can be. And that typically apparently doesn't happen as far as I understand it to be. So it's kind of odd um, that we have to deal with this versus certain other plants, I suppose. It is very fascinating uh, that it exists that way. It's a gender fluid plant. Yeah, more so than other plants are, I think. Although there's definitely other plants that are as sort of uh, gender fluid as cannabis is. Um, There are even animals that in extreme situations will reverse their sex. That's actually a really good point too. Like uh, seahorses, I think do that and certain fish, lots of animals do that. Yeah, there's some like salamanders that do it. But Oregon CBD, who's been producing feminized hemp seed, has a one in 4,000 ratio of their feminized uh, seed turning male. And they say 100% female genotype because those males even though they present themselves physically as a hundred percent male they have balls that pollen is all xx pollen it only produces feminized seed and they're actually an xx um genotype the if you test it genomically those quote males are actually female oh man i forget what that's called do you remember what that's called dr mj no, I'm just thinking about that. But that is a situation that I, I'm sort of familiar with. Um, but no, the word's escaping me. Maybe I'll be able to find it. You found one I in always, which line, Brandon? The Limarilla. I, 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 call, I always call them Soma males. Uh, I've, had it, I've only had it happen twice. Um, it's, it's a really rare occasion, but the, all the rest of the seeds will all be female. And then the, the thing will just produce nothing but male, male pollen sacs, even though it came from a rototilled line. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting occurrence, and that's why if you look at Oregon CBD, who's doing acres and acres of hemp, they have like a ninety nine point nine seven or something uh, feminized. So they can't say a hundred percent quite yet because they haven't been able to weed out those few percent that are females that have male pollen sacs all over them. And it's weird to even call it a hermaphrodite because they don't produce any pistil or stigma at all. It's a hundred percent pollen sacs. They don't produce. They wouldn't even self. They pollinate the hemp around it, but it only produces, I believe it's stamen is the male pollen sac name. You know, it kind of reminds me, although it's not necessarily the same thing at all, um, how sometimes different um, cucurbits, so like your squashes and like zucchini and pumpkin and that kind of thing, they can kind of interbreed and um, the fruit will change, you know, like usually you have to wait until like the seed you know, uh, is planted and you grow it out and then you find out the fruit's kind of a different phenotype um, or at least what that change will be because it won't be identical, right? But uh, even the fruit kind of changes and I think that's kind of neat. Again, I forget what that process is too, but. Kind of along the same lines and I don't have an answer, but I'm very interested in the answer. Abolish Farms, shout out to my buddy Abolish Farms in chat. He's uh, he was asking, he said, is there a difference between the natural herm pollen, you know, when you take it too long, you just let it go and let it go and go, go until it herms. Is there a difference between that pollen and uh, a stress-induced herm pollen? That is, is a stress-induced herm, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, the difference there so is, is what you're starting with, what would cause those different plants to, to produce pollen. Um, but they're going to produce pollen that's consistent with the genetics that are present in that plant. Nothing about sort of how you're doing this is going to affect the, the genetics of the pollen. So the pollen is always the same. It's just, yeah, it's just a different it's, it's way like to get to that point. What I've, no- to the pollen. what I've noticed, 
yeah. is that if you collect pollen from plants that have been perfectly healthy um, and that have just gone way past their date uh, to produce those hermaphrodite flowers, um, I typically see stability, more, much more stability. Um, and then you might see some like late stage herms, which herms are that are produced so late in the flowering that they're not an issue. Um, and then I've seen that uh, herms produced by stress, uh, like early in flowering, it seems that the seeds from that stock will also produce herms earlier if stressed. I've noticed that exact same phenomenon. And I think that certain people that do not do um, something like I think Spartan and others do the perpetual harvest. Uh, if you do like a monocrop where you're chopping it all down at one time, yeah, that late stage hermy might not be an issue for you. But if you've got ones in week three and week six and other weeks that are earlier that haven't been chopped yet, it is a big issue. So certain people have to, um, I like when breeders actually admit like, oh, late in flower, this one will throw nanners, but it won't early. And I like that they actually put stuff like that out there because certain people are okay with that, but other people that could ruin their whole entire setup. I suppose that there might be epigenetic effects, maybe like, like if we were, if, if, if such a thing were to happen, like out in nature without human interaction, maybe the various stressors would have, like, I know temperature increase can like cause methylation sometimes or, or, or something like that. Anyways, maybe Dr. MJ would be more articulate on that. Um, I'm not really or sure. Or maybe I'm not. Yeah, maybe yeah I don't know what you're going for there. I had another point that I wanted to sort of raise for this, which is hermaphrodism is the ancestral condition. Um, the monoecious and dioecious flowering in plants is evolved from hermaphroditic ancestors. So it, it's it, we may be thinking about this in sort of a little bit different way the, the having separate male and female plants is a is an adaptation that plants essentially can revert away from um is is what's going on here but that more, you're saying that because of the basal status it's it's the aberrant one of the two right well and the, they can breed back to each other which is important even if you get the one that's completely monoecious versus one that's completely dioecious um, no matter how stable you get either one of them to be, they'll be able to breed into each other. So it's like still in the same, same species. species. Yeah. Have you guys ever have you guys but, ever dealt with a variety that no matter what you did to it, as far as making it herm, the pollen was not viable? Because I had one of the very first varieties that I ever cultivated was the clone only purple Kush from Oakland, which is the uh, it's I think it was a purple Afghani cross from Pakistan variety and uh it didn't i tried to breed with this with this particular variety so many times and i tried to get it to herm i tried to make any of the pollen i could ever get off of it it was never viable it would never make uh it would never make seed it's called a sterile female and breeder steve is looking for it if you uh link up with breeder steve and you still have a cut of that he'd probably be highly interested because he's been talking about this for years he had a similar situation and uh yeah it's fascinating it makes well, my mind wander to what we were talking about in our on our Instagram chat with the grafting or not grafting, but when you, you well yeah grafting you're grafting to a different rootstock. I wonder if, if you did something like that if you could trigger it enough to produce viable pollen if you had a different rootstock like a really good breeding female, put it on that rootstock and maybe maybe it would make a change to get that to produce. But then again, you lose the the whole point of why you want to breed with it. It's because it's a sterile. You know what I mean? That's that's the thing. It's that's the golden 
that's the golden ticket right there. If you can produce seed, how, how are you going to make seed of something that's sterile, that produces sterile pollen? Because if you can do it, the hemp people are going to be loving you. Yeah, they want that sterile trait in the hemp. So those no, whatever saying... three males that throw pollen are going to throw uh, sterile pollen that doesn't make any seed in their hemp if they're growing for other things like terpenes and oils and other things like that. Is the female sterile too? Can it make seeds or is it just the male pollen that's sterile? Well, there's, no. there's sterile females that don't produce any stigma as well. No, but I'm asking, talked about that. I'm asking what Brandon has. Uh, okay, so this variety, whenever I would force a herm on it, Uh, just letting them go. You're, You're covering fine. your mic. Your mic's covered up. It's super quiet. Oh, can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. So, um, what happened was, I was... Oh my God, man. It's like he went into a fishbowl. That's like Murphy's Law. What can go wrong? Well, you went super quiet again right as you took off. Let's try it. Third time's a charm. Still quiet. He might be preoccupied. Brandon. Can you hear like me? You're at the bottom of a well. There we go. Well, oh, now okay. you're back. Okay. So um, uh, what I was doing was I was light stressing the thing to, to make the purple kush herm. Uh, and then I've also tried um, uh, late uh, going past uh, peak, peak ripe, ripeness several weeks to make it herm. And I've got in the variety to her, hermaphrodite. It's just that that pollen, it doesn't matter what it touches, it doesn't, it will, it will not be viable. So it's impossible but to make seeds with it. Will the purple kush itself get pollinated and make seeds? Yes. Cross it with it the oh, okay. Okay. So, so here's the thing, right? I actually just popped a bunch of 20 year old seeds from my friend who was doing a bunch of breeding when I first started and he used that purple kush. So I have like purple kush crossed with johnny blaze which is f2 blueberry neville's haze i have the purple kush crossed with mk ultra i have let's keep uh, the focus on the sterile oh yeah so it's it's good you can use it to breed with if you hit it with a a male but it itself cannot be used for like selfing it can't be reversed it just won't work so if they could figure out what is in that genetically that makes that pollen uh non-viable that I think would be remarkable to somehow cross that because you said you said it receives pollen. So maybe you hit it with a male hemp cultivar. You take those seeds and then you look for something in there to feminize that's below the hemp range that can only throw non-viable pollen. And then you fix that whole organ CBD issue of like the 99.7 or whatever, that 0.7 that becomes a, a male, even though it's a male, it'll only throw non-viable pollen. Yeah, you know what? It's interesting because even if you did find that male, what are you going to do with it, right? Because now you have this male, you finally found it, but you can't do anything with it. The right? male's pollen is probably viable. Uh, I think that I think it has to be the, understood the on the female code. would be viable too. I just wonder if if it's very very difficult to um, get it to produce viable pollen. Um, either that, or there's a some mutation that's rendering it sterile and that's not particularly uncommon um to have mutations render plants sterile i just think it's uh, in this case it's a desirable trait i, I don't think that it is uncommon yeah, if you could isolate it into it. other strains i agree with that and i think that's something certain people are looking for like big scale hemp farmers and like breeder steve has acres and or actually hectares in Colombia that he's cultivating cannabis for oil production 
for export because they can legally do that. And so he's looking for these sort of unicorns that would allow them to do field planting with uh, no issue with a feminized crop. Yeah, this just reminds me of the, the Terminator gene. I mean, th those efforts in plant breeding to make um, seeds become sterile have really um, sort of rankled a lot of people in, in various industries and led to a lot of protests and other things like that. So th there are potentially other concerns with that, but um, I, I definitely see the, the benefit to having plants that won't produce viable pollen. His goal is to make people be able to buy like corn cobs of cannabis buds for like less than a dollar. I think he said 10 cents. So like he's actually come from a, a good place and I don't think he would twist it that way. But I think there are people out there, like you said, that would. The only thing that know. prevents cannabis from being at that price point really is the legal regime. I mean, if cannabis was grown as a field crop, we would assume that and it was under any kind of normal um, regulation regime we would assume that its price would be fairly similar to other agricultural product prices, which are just marginally above the price of production. Um, the price of production of cannabis when it's grown at, at field level scale could be really low, comparable to other, other crops. Um, so really the only thing that, that's keeping that price point above that point where it would be, you know, what, what did you say? How much for the, the corn cob pipe or whatever? I think you said like 10 cents. I said a dollar initially, but I think you said 10 cents for like a corn cob size. And I think yeah. you're right, it is just regulation. And you get years of corn for about that much. And corn actually produces less per per area of land than cannabis can produce. Um, the the cost would be a little bit higher, especially at first for cannabis, but with mechanization, it would come down too. So um, it, it's really just a question of legal regime. There's nothing inherent in cannabis. I mean, we're dealing with field crop level cannabis there, but uh, that would make it so much more expensive than other crops. How do they harvest some of the other resinous crops, like some of them are herbs, like uh, culinary herbs, or they have resin. They have yeah, some of that has to be hand harvested, and that's why it's actually yeah. herbs are more expensive. Um, one of the big factors that goes into the expense of some things is how much human labor has to go involved in harvesting and processing it. Um, increasingly, unfortunately, the world is using displaced flows of migrants from um, really sort of war tavern or economically de depressed places to do that agricultural labor. Um, so agricultural labor is not as big of a concern, even in some markets that it used to be a much bigger concern. But yeah, there's a lot more labor involved. Yeah, because I can imagine trying to mechanize, you know, using machines to harvest quality cannabis would just wreck the resin. I don't know how you could do it. Uh, you don't. You don't. I, I'm not talking about for quality cannabis. I'm talking about for sort of field style cannabis. It's decent uh, enough yeah, okay. quality for mass consumption, um, but it's not the quality that we're probably enjoying ourselves right now. But yeah, he was talking the price tops. point difference would be. Just imagine pre-rolls. Just imagine pre-rolls. Yeah, they, they would come in packs. Or imagine yeah. extracts. Extracts. And imagine hash. And imagine all of those other kinds of products. Um, but yeah, we're not talking about sort of top, top shelf flour. And when it's you like when you go to machine harvesting, you sacrifice a percentage of your harvest for reducing your your labor costs. So those machines would roll through the fields like a corn harvester does, and probably you know 
be pretty wasteful from our perspective as as home growers and how they were harvesting the the product but they have some people that can process it on the back end and get tons of oils and and things out of it if they're not using it for like the flower production uh, they still got to figure out how to make a a a, uh, a plant that won't uh, seed out because <laughs> until there's seeds that you can get a plant that doesn't produce pollen there's always going to be pollen in the air outside i'm sorry it's going to happen so so like abortive seed gene or something. Well, yeah. that's why he was looking for the sterile female with no pistol or stigma. Um, so a female that just can't receive pollen, like you're saying. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Does it produce buds still or calyxes? <laughs> that it'd be weird to see a, a calyx with no sort of level of, uh, or a bract, I should say, of cannabis with no stigma or pistols on there. I would imagine there's a way to make them unviable if you spray them with something that would, because like even sometimes I've seen pictures where people spray something, you know, the, the white hairs turn brown and then I, I don't think they water will do pollen. that. Just water is enough to do that. And, and pollen will make them also change color. But if you spray water hard enough on the stigma or pistol, then it will shrivel up and perhaps even become unviable. Some of them actually can come back to viability after they've gotten wet, but. It's a little bit I don't know. I spray my plants all the time and it's like being rained on. It doesn't kill, it doesn't turn them around. In nature, I know that like high UV, <coughs> which is why cannab, which is one reason why the trichomes and cannabinoids are, are useful for the plant or at least thought to be, um, you know, high, high heat could perhaps have this effect both on pollen and also maybe on the really sensitive um reproductive tissue so i don't know maybe there'd be some way to like utilize that fact i don't know how exactly but hmm. i keep thinking about sort of other crops and all of this it, it strikes me that cannabis is really different than a lot of crops because a lot of crops require pollination in order to produce um, and cannabis is, there are other situations where you try to prevent pollination, but it's not as sort of ubiquitous as it is with cannabis. Um, the, the thing that got me thinking about this though, is if we really, you know, the sensimia, um, we always accomplish sensimia by, so without seed cannabis, by eliminating pollen from our grow rooms. Um, that's, they did the exactly the opposite strategy to produce seedless oranges. Um, they don't try to prevent orange pollen from pollinating the flowers. They, they breed females that don't produce seeds, regardless of being pollinated. Um, so that's an interesting angle I hadn't thought about in terms of, of cannabis specific, but I wonder how much room or how much sort of movement they could make um, towards breeding females that were reluctant to produce seeds. That's exactly what a seedless orange is. That's an interesting concept. And I know from personal experience that some varieties take pollen much better than others. Because I've gotten varieties where I, I pollinated the whole thing and I've only, and I'll pull out, you know, two, three seeds out of, you know, a couple of grams. And then I've also, had varieties where I squish a gram and, and it seems just like a massive amount of beans are just 
fallen out of those things. Yeah, so you could do that then. Uh, you know, all you do to make a seedless orange is you find the orange that has the fewest seeds and you plant those seeds and then you grow them out and then you find the oranges that have the fewest seeds from those progeny and you plant those and eventually you get down to the point where there aren't any seeds left anymore for you to plant. Um, I wonder then how do you make more? Yeah, well, it, it's always that right up against the edge of truly being seedless, right? Um, the vast majority of the fruit on the tree have zero seeds, but you still will get the, the stray seed amongst sort of all of the fruit. But yeah, it becomes harder and harder to, to collect those seeds to actually do this. That's the, the sort of downside of that strategy. You, you tend to keep those plants alive through vegetative propagation. So once you got uh, sort of a female that was resistant to pollen, um, you wouldn't <laughs> you wouldn't be able to continue breeding with her easily, um, and you would have to keep that going through through cloning. I know that there are like uh, improved and like seedless and semi seedless grape cultivars, of course, like we see in. Uh, yep, same Asia. same basic concept. Yep, right. yep. They, those. Those are females that are resistant to pollen. It's not what we're doing, which now that I'm thinking about it, seems much more onerous from a management perspective, which is trying to prevent pollen in what's really a promiscuous crop, cannabis, um, to be able to prevent any stray pollen from getting on your crops. It requires us growing in like sealed tents, right? Um, so the, the strategy to bring that outdoors, I think really would be to, to be able to breed this into females. Well, breeder, uh... Shredder0911 says, Breeder Steve referenced seedless watermelons as an example of stereotype that he did not want since they make preemie seeds or like the little white seeds versus the black seed. Yeah, He didn't I want cannabis to be even able to make like a small or minor amount. That's why he was looking for that uh, stigma or pistol. Uh, agree. So the seedless watermelons um, aren't really there yet. They're producing sort of those proto seeds. Um, in, but the seedless oranges produce nothing there are no seeds in them and the seedless grapes similarly interestingly uh, enough seedless, seedless grapes I, have less of the healthy stuff as far as like the nutrition value just a fun fact just wanted to say i do like oranges and i don't know how many i buy but i bought seedless oranges that had seeds in them they were those plant produce. them plant them <laughs> they were those shitty white ones they weren't even fucking oh, okay. mature they were like really like immature shitty ones yeah, you, know, you might end up with some of that if you get, I mean, and you would, if you had a female that was resistant to pollination, you would get the occasional stray seed, you would get the occasional proto seed. Um, I, I still think that that would be a, a acceptable sort of end point as a, if it meant that you didn't have to isolate maps. Felix says, if I pollinate a plant, will the plants next to it get jealous? And uh, my answer is yes, but... No definitive science on that. There's always that old, I'm going to go to the old, old man, old wisdom. And there's always that old uh, trick to take a male and put it in your sensimilia garden for the first couple of weeks. It's so stupid. <laughs> and supposedly with a, the, a male in the, in the room, it uh, perks up the females and, and produces more pollen, or not pollen, more uh, resin. Yeah, it resin. riles them up. It gets their hormones yeah. going. Yeah, I've heard this many, many times. I've, I've never been brave enough to try that, but uh, I've always heard it. I've done it unintentionally because I flipped regs and I had five females and one male and it was actually one of the better runs I ever had. So maybe there is something to it. There you go. Science. That's some bro well, science. I don't think right it is science yet, but it could be. Almost science.
if you read the book Secret Life of Plants, there's a lot of crazy shit that's actual science that plants know about people and, and their gardeners and uh, people that even like mistreat plants or like say mean shit to plants. Like they can detect certain things like that. And, yeah, this is why I don't smoke in front of my plants. Right? I don't want them to, to figure out what's going on here and refuse to cooperate with the plan. Oh, I take the opposite angle. I go in there in the flower room and I blow the smoke and I'm like, thank you. This is my, <laughs> this is my medicine. You guys are going to be this. You guys are going to heal me. I just, little, little I just, I know, it's incredible. I'm like, wait a second. What's going on here? I, you know, hold on, hold on. What are you doing? That smells like our friend. Exactly. They know what's up. I don't lie to them, man. You got to be honest with your plants. In Spartan's case, it's actually like a cousin or like a, a clone of itself in many cases. So it's like, oh, shit, there's a piece of me that got harvested a few weeks ago. Exactly. Yeah. They know they're going to keep going. See, that's that's the thing. The whole circle, they get to see it all and just live on in perpetuation. You're welcome, plants. <laughs> You're a true steward of the plant, Spartan. You're plant welcome. I talk to my plants. I'm not going to lie. I tell them nice things. Uh, hey, I'm removing these leaves because it's going to help yeah. the airflow through you. And here, I'm going to give you a little bit of water and tell them they're beautiful and, and shake them a little bit and say, this is, it's not windy enough in here. So I'm simulating a little windstorm for you ladies. And you look so nice today. I have found that plants are the best listeners. Yeah, they listen good. I, won't I, argue you know, that. I used to talk to them a lot before topping them. Um, and then I realized that I was just becoming a little bit too melodramatic with it. And I should just probably top them. They know it's good for them. Yeah. I talk That's to my, my plants, especially when I bump into them. I'm like, oh, sorry about that. Yep. Or when you're bending them down and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talk to myself too, though. So I'm not sure if that's related to this or. So I'm putting myself out there, man. I seriously, I go at work and I'll go. So when I water, you ha I, it's a thing with me, but I have to go down and check and make sure every single lead that goes to each, it's not drippers, but sprayers, I will call. There's two per pot, but I, I have to physically see each one spraying water to be okay. So as I water, I, I walk down the whole table and make sure that's going on. As I go down, I high five the leaves. <laughs> they get a high five all the way down. So it's just something I do. Yeah, and you know, I think that having a relationship with your plants is only a positive thing. Um, assuming that the relationship doesn't get in the way of doing those necessary plant management practices that you have to do. And I, I'll tell you, I do see this. I mean, I see growers that have a hard time training their plants because they love them too much um, or harvesting their plants because they love them too much. Uh, as long as you can sort of avoid that, um, I think loving your plants and talking to them and, and high-fiving them or petting them is, is perfectly, um, appropriate. I think I'm with Spartan on the fact that it's like, if you think it works, it works. It's the placebo effect on top of what they cover in the secret life of plants is that plants often, uh, can, according to the book, this is not my science, but if you want to look into the secret life of plants, they can detect the emotion of the gardener, even to the point of when the gardener leaves the garden to a certain range, the plants have an ability to detect like when you're having a good reaction, they like hook it up to a lie detector and they can see on the plant without even being attached to the human that the human like had a experience. Yeah, so, the guy was in a different lie. state. The guy was in a different state and had a traumatic experience and the plant sensed it in the laboratory where they were left with the sensors on it. So I think if that's the case, then my thought is 
I'm always close enough to my plants that they'll probably be in the detectable range. So I just try to be like an upbeat, happy, positive person all the time. So that way uh, my plants sort of get that vibe. I'm the one who deals with them 97.5% of the time. Occasionally Lady Greenstock helps me out and occasionally we go on vacation and I have a one plant sitter that'll help me out. But when you're that sole person, I really do think that there's like some caregivership that the plant understands. Like when I go on vacation, even if the person takes perfect care of everything, even if the environment stays exactly perfect, I come back and everything just looks a little bit sadder. Then as soon as I'm taking care of it exactly the same way that they were, everything comes right back to health. And I, you can call it anecdotal or whatever, but I think I know my garden. Is, is it always the else. same plant sitter that you use? What's that? It's always the same plant sitter. So just generally, like sometimes my plant sitter has have fucked up in the past. So I actually had to like rescue the garden. So I came right. back. No, I'm, not thinking about that. I'm just wondering if you've noticed any difference, if like the plants like some plant sitters better than other plant sitters, um, you know, pets can certainly be like that. Oh yeah. Pets and plants for me. Um, I had definitely, I had two or three different plant sitters and I've stuck to just the one now who did the best. And I don't know if that's because the plants liked them the best or if they actually follow directions the best. So it could be a combination of both. Yeah, I agree. Whenever I'm gone, when I come back, my plants look like a little sad. And usually after a couple of days of me taking care of them, they look a little bit better. I also think that there's something to the fact that different growers just don't, you know, that there's like a routine you have when you go in your grow room, if you've done it for a long time, like I have, and your plants kind of get to know it. I, I don't know that, but I think that. And I also think that like, if you don't do certain things in certain orders and they're used to it, they can kind of just, I don't know. I have a couple of weird theories about that myself too. So. Oh yeah. Even when I get my plants up to like five times daily um, irrigation or fertigation, if they miss one of those, I can see a reaction. Like if one of them is an hour late or something, because I haven't filled up the tank and I had to turn it off. Um, you notice that, and it's not because they're too dry, I'm fertigating five times a day. They were just expecting something. They got kind of prepared for it and it didn't happen and they notice it. They're amazing, honestly, like what they're able to detect that we maybe aren't even aware of. And uh, that's a perfect example. And that's why I think it's such a fun process because if you talk to any honest, humble gardener and you ask them about their last harvest, they'll say, even if it's like the dankest shit ever and you're really blown away by it and you're like, damn, that's really good shit. To them, it's probably like a nine out of 10 because they know there's that something they could have done to improve it just a little bit. There's always something, even if it goes like really, really, really well, there's always one little thing. You're like, Hey, next time, next time I'm going to do this or that. And I think if you don't have that mentality, at least then uh, maybe your quality will suffer. But I think people that are like that are always looking to improve and are constantly generally getting better and, and taking on new information and advice to improve their quality. I would definitely say that that's a very common, like, creator developer anyone who makes anything basically understands it in the process you know you're at the very end of the deadline you're almost never left with the ideal thing that you were going for something something about the situation doesn't allow for it especially if you have a time crunch right so i definitely agree with that and i think there's stuff that we don't even consider like uh, noah was talking about like uh, if you change your routine or if somebody else is doing the routine, even if they think they're doing it exactly as you would, or if you write it down as best as you can to follow step by step to do it exactly like you would, just the process that you do, maybe you're like, your breathing adds a little more CO2 than maybe somebody who's smaller than you or less active than you or who's not talking. My one buddy who's my favorite breeder, shout out to Vegan Doja, he sings to his plants all the time in his greenhouse and they're just sun grown and 
all vegan inputs and he's a vegan and he just loves his plants and he's always singing to him and drumming to him and he's out there and he used to lug five gallon or 10, 10 gallons of water two five gallon jugs like half a mile to go get water to give to them and when you put that amount of dedication and love into something i really do think that uh it shows through because his quality is by far some of the best and he was the most dedicated person i'd ever seen in the garden so that dedication however it manifests itself i think it always shows through in the final quality i think what everyone's saying here is consistency and, and, and i've seen it too myself and it's just like all living things they like consistency you know, people have problem with dogs or training a dog. Just get consistency. Give them the same kids. Consistency. You know, it's just like if you, plants the same way. If if you give them whatever it is that you're doing, we no one can be you better than you. So there's no way you can duplicate that as far as how you do your things in the garden. But I mean, you can tell them the best you can, but they're never going to do everything exact same time that you do, exact same way that you do it's going to be a little bit different. And that's why I think where you're seeing those inconsistencies and, um, and then there's the, you know, the fifth element or, or whatever. And that's, that's the, our psyche, you know, I think, like you said, with this study where they could affect where it could uh, sense the, the person even out of the room, I think our own psyche, it's like we project things, um, you know, be it feelings or not, or vibes or whatever you want to call it. And if you go in there with a terrible attitude, you're projecting that onto the plant and uh, you can see it. You can see it in the plant health. You can see it in the growth. And it, like Jack said earlier, how he tries to be in a good mood. And uh, it's like, sometimes for me, that is my good mood. I could be in a terrible mood and just, I don't know, just in my head or something, go in my garden, just sit there and stare at the plants for a while. And I'm good. Maybe smoke a joint right in front of them. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and I'm good. So as, as far as the, the, the whole psyche thing, um, it's, it's definitely an effect. I, I've seen it, especially in my home grow. I suppose whether, whether they are genes or whether they're memes, you know, like how we behave versus how we're genetically like constructed and all of the, you know, downstream effects of that. I think that's very, very true in a way, right? That like, well, I don't want to oversimplify it, but basically if we're, if you're somebody who behaves a certain way in the garden and it has a positive effect, then those plants are going to be benefited from that. Right. And like, you know, a less sort of uh, anthropological version of this would be like, like ants that cultivate fungi, like a uh, harvester ants or um, uh, leaf cutter ants, because like, you've got tons of colonies, but they don't, they don't really have like a consciousness like we do. Right. And I'm trying not to be long winded, but like they're based, like one group is going to basically cultivate like the other group, but there will be small inconsistencies and over millions of years that might account for a whole new species or something. Um, there's also like just random genetic, like uh, mutations that can have effects. Same with us. We might have like a, a, something happened to us in our life that changes how we behave and that can have a an amazingly significant effect right so i think that the inconsistency consistency thing kind of works on a lot of levels right for sure and like spartan consistently smokes in his garden and like when we talk about the phylosphere maybe his microbes on the plant like the ones that don't like smoke they adapt or die you know like those microbes are gone or whatever or i don't know if that's oversimplifying whatever his plants get used to him smoking in there. So even if you give somebody else the same cut and they grow under the same lights, same soil, same everything, if that other person doesn't smoke in their room, 
maybe Spartan's plants are going to have a little bit different profile because that's who he is as a gardener and he does it all the time like that. So I think that there's going to be little things that come out over time that all we, when we talk about the grow off when 15 growers get the same exact cut they always come back with 15 different results terpene profiles cannabinoid profiles everything that's where all these tiny little minor like seemingly minor factors all add up to the final end product that you are able to present yourself as a grower yeah a, i find it funny to have an aversion to smoking cannabis in a cannabis garden because to me especially as an organic grower i mean i'm feeding them to themselves in the soil i mean i'm feeding my plants with plants to begin with and, and there's some aversion to smoking it in front of them <laughs> i mean it's mainly a joke but yeah no i mean i don't have to i can grow in a tent so the tent's not open for very long um but yeah i did catch myself once blowing a big sort of cloud of smoke on them and i'm like oh my god they're gonna figure out what's gonna happen and i i haven't done it since then <laughs> But um, I think that if I was in a different situation, I probably would. I think it's just it's sort of a, a funny point more than anything else. There's this, there's this great research report. Uh, I don't remember the title, but basically it was going over a lot of um, sort of uh, basically human interactions with microbes and especially things like that we make with microbes, like, like, um, like cheese, for example, and wine and all these other sorts of things. And they were tracking how like domestication of these microbes occurred and it's because of our behaviors interacting with cows and stuff like a fly is thought to be the primary vector at some time long long ago like flies moving a mic i know it's kind of gross to think about but really these microbes would come from somewhere and then land on uh, these plants and so in a lot of ways we have um we have to thank aspects of ecology that we didn't really think about before you know, and how serendipitous it all is somewhat. Was that a mic drop? Did I miss a mic drop? Yeah, I think Matt just dropped the mic after his serendipity comment. No, it's a, it's a, a good process. point. I was just getting back from filling up my water bottle, but uh, I was listening. <laughs> yeah, so... Anyways, I think that like, just like with like smoke, like our, our, it's funny how sort of like simple, subtle behaviors that we all do differently can have sort of, sort of radical downstream effects. And I love that kind of stuff. I always talk about it. It's almost impossible not to be able to, because it's easy to say, well, this thing kind of interacts with another thing, even if it's indirect, right? So. Yeah. Well, like the best example I can think of is is that the wolves that they introduced into uh, or reintroduced into Yellowstone, that whole story, I'm sure a lot of have already heard it, so I don't want to go through it all, but it just like eventually changed the course of the river. So it's amazing how things can really cascade into a big change. Um, There's a lot of little things that could be different grower to grower. Some of that you know, I think a lot of um, scientists write off a lot of the the benefits of sort of the farmer's footsteps and just thinking that if you're there, you're paying more attention, you're going to be more aware of issues as they first arise and be able to better sort of adjust or adjust those issues. Um, you know, and we're talking about some of the things that would sort of fall into that category here in terms of spending time in the garden. 
Um, there's also that we might be doing subtle things differently. Um, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. We also might be doing really big things differently, especially if you go grower to grower, um, like in the grow challenge type of a situation. Um, one point that I wanted to raise with all of this, because I see it coming up a lot, is this is something to remember whenever you're giving another grower advice about their grow is that there's a lot of things that might have worked really well in your grow or might have been a problem in your grow that aren't going to apply specifically to the other grower. So you might see symptoms that are similar or, how, or feel like it's in a similar situation, but it's really important to make sure that you're, you're giving advice when you're giving advice that's really specific to the other grower situation. Um, and just because it worked for you doesn't mean it's necessarily gonna work for them if they're doing other things differently. Yeah, I see sometimes people give advice and just their advice is do it the way I do it. <laughs> like, oh, you, you do DWC, switch to soil. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of a little bit of a hard change to do right in the middle of a grow or something for somebody. And I think, like you just said, you got to approach them from where they're at and whatever cultivation method they're doing and uh, go from there because it may be extremely different from your own. And I actually find that to be one of the more enjoyable things about interacting with the growing community online is so many people have grown in different ways that I haven't. Like, um, I know we're going to try and get aquaponics Steve or potentonics Steve on the podcast and he's a person who grows in aquaponics and I haven't had the chance to do that yet and I've always been fascinated by it and I think it's a really cool way to cultivate but it's just something I've never done so to talk to somebody who's been doing it for years and years and has a lot of advice and knowledge on it is uh, interesting because then if I ever talk to somebody who's doing that sort of setup I have a little bit of a more knowledge on the subject so I won't have to come at it from an organic soil perspective I can come at it from well, there's this guy who's actually doing this stuff and you can actually contact him or I could give you advice that I heard directly from him. And uh, it's nice to sort of spread the information out as quickly as we can like that. Yeah, I'd like to shout out Potent Ponic Steve and, and Roger over there at the uh, Growing for Fishes podcast. They asked me to come on, I was on it. And I had an awesome time with those guys. Those guys are so cool. They're Instantly, it was like two old friends, you know what I mean, when you go on there. So um just shout out to them. They, that's a really good podcast. If you guys like this podcast, you'll like theirs. So check out Potent Ponics on YouTube. Great show. Yeah, they're doing a cool project in Africa that temporarily is on a little hiatus right now because of the whole pandemic situation and traveling being disrupted. But I was really excited to the project because it's really large scale. And I mentioned him earlier, but Breeder Steve is actually also using aquaponics. He has like alligators in the 4,000 or some crazy liter tank. Uh, he's got alligators and live fish and all sorts of predatory fish and it's not just like they're getting fed pellets it's a pretty crazy what you can do with aquaponics as far as making uh, ecosystems and you can also harvest fish to eat and sell and things like that too and speaking of uh, his time in zimbabwe he talked to me on the show about how he didn't have and actually i wanted to, i think i did bring it up to matthew maybe in a, our chat but i want to bring it up again but uh thought this was so cool how he was uh he was making he was so he's taken IMO. So he was doing IMO collections and, and uh, he thought of a different way to do it. He would take the rice collection like you normally would. Well, first he would get the rice before he cooked it. He would mix in some his insect frass and uh, mix it real good, then cook it with the frass in it. And the theory was, was he was trying to attract with his IMO collection, uh, the fungi uh, specifically for the chitinase, you know what I mean? The chitinase uh, feeding fungi and um, when he did this collection he he did 
the IMO pass, you know, you go to one, two, three, on down to you get to liquid IMO. I don't know how far down that is, but uh, once you get to liquid IMO, he used that and um, used it as a pesticide, sprayed it when the locusts came through, and he said it decimated them, completely decimated them. So I thought, wow, that seems like a organic IPM that I could make myself. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is there something as far as, uh, well, I, I, he didn't say he was spraying on the plants. I don't know if he did or not. He didn't tell me what either way, how he used it, but I wonder, you think would it be something safe that you could spray on a plant? I think that, um, well, so if it's, uh, if it's chitin from the frass, right. So I could see how it might be plausible that, um, microbes that were collected like for example Bavaria bassiana and certain other soil pat so like pat intimate pathogenic fungi they can be um soil associated a lot of them are soil associated and they're also endophytes so they can get into the plant too and at first they used to be just soil and then they developed traits that allowed them to kind of do both and then they have this sort of nice dual ecological niche right so i could see how similar sorts of microbes bacterial fungal whatever um maybe were able to subsist on the frass if it had chitin then produce chitinase through that you know through that subsistence process um, but i don't i don't know like there are a lot of aspects of that story that are not um available and i'd be curious because yeah and that's the best i can remember after eating a cookie and smoking so <laughs> yes so i could see how like the chitinase if it was stable and i'm not sure um chemically how that is but i could see how like maybe if they overproduce it's kind of like how essentially you ferment um sugar with yeast to make alcohol right you could ferment um, chitin with XYZ microbe to produce chitinase and then maybe harvest it in some way. But it's hard to imagine that it would be successful um, en masse without a level of um, quality control, maybe. But um, it sounds like, in, it sort of sounds plausible if I take it from that direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it'd be cool if you could make, I, I, I need a chitinase factory. To spray I think that'd be really cool. Chitinase. <laughs> no, I, I super, I definitely support looking into things like that. Cause I could, I've had thoughts that are kind of adjacent to that. And it would be really cool if we could find a, a microbe that's as like easy to sort of produce at a local scale as it is. Like I can have, I have yeast packets, I've home brewed, uh, fruit wines and things before It'd be amazing to be able to just sell like freeze-dried fungus that that you can just kind of plop into a, a bag of frass and then ferment up like that like maybe it would take some you know, be technological it'd hmm? be cheap too it'd be fairly cheap too which is awesome <laughs> yeah and you know maybe it would take some like uh overhead to kind of do the research to figure this out but then after the fact if you had the industrial ability to do so, like kind of like Brandon with Bokashi, um, you know, I could see that being a possibility. And like you say, it'd be very fundamental, basic, and, and most importantly, cheap, hopefully.
Um, one of the ways that you can promote different types of microorganisms is the uh, amino acids that's in the protein soy hydrolysate because um, it actually has 19 of, I think, 20 essential amino acids that are like the building blocks of, uh, you know, carbon-based life. And uh, I think chitinase is one of those, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there's also amylase. There's... Uh, Oh man, there's there's tons of tons of amino acids in there. I don't know if chitin or chitinase would fall into that group. Chitinase is a protein um, or an enzyme that uh, disrupts uh, chitin, which is a polymer, something like that. I am not a physical chemist, but you're you're correct in what, describing what it does and the categorization. I do believe is an enzyme. Versus a amino acid like Brandon was describing. I had a question from the chat. Desert Grown asks at Spartan Grown off subject. I'm attempting a sip or a sub irrigated planter container on a 17 gallon reservoir. How large of a water pocket should I plan for water to soil ratio? I know we had abolished in here earlier. I don't know if he's still around. He does the frugal forest with a sip container. And I think Spartan, you also have a few setups like that. Yeah, so my sip containers are planters and they hold 1.5 cubic, I answered this in chat, 1.5 cubic feet of soil. So what is that, around a 10 gallon? ten Between 10 and 15, somewhere in that area? I think it's 10 gallons. If somebody told me that a few weeks ago, I think it's 10. Okay, and then um, the water reservoir underneath holds two gallons. It's suspended above, so there's an air pocket between the two, except for on the very edges where the water or the soil goes all the way to the bottom. But like a 10 to 2 ratio, so it'd be a 5 yeah, to 1. So, so it'd be like a 10 to 2, yeah, 5 to 1. Yep. Perfect. So 5 to 1 ratio. So just apply that to, I didn't see the question, but, or I don't remember the his ratios. I got it. So yeah, he said like, 17 gallon. I didn't know if that he meant that was his soil because he called it his res. So I didn't under, I that's why I just said what I had because I didn't really understand what he said he had. That's why I figured we'd bring it up on the, the panel and then we could talk it out and uh, it'd be a little easier than typing it up. I know you're trimming it up over there. So uh, Desert Grown, hopefully they said, excellent. Yeah. Thank you, Spartan. I really appreciate your info. You are a beast. So shout out to Desert Grown. We're <laughs> glad you. we could help you out. Carrying that ratio would just give him a res that needed three gallons of water if he's getting 17 gallons of soil. Yeah, Maybe. I think that would work well. And shout out to Joni Bell. Uh, I see them in the fucking talking shit with Eagle Gardens. It's a week, every day of the week podcast. It's live. Uh, comes on after the Michigan Bros Grow Show. I also saw them earlier in the chat, Skilbo17. And uh, I think maybe it was sequence on the Michigan Bros Grow Show channel. But shout out Bosch to those guys over there. there. Bosch was in there too for a little while. Yep. He, uh, I just gave him the shout out when we were talking about Frugal Forest and Sips. I love their show. I want to actually maybe try throwing down my tent is actually set up perfectly for a sip i think because my bottom tray um, i have basically three three gallon pots sitting right next to each other and they're sitting on like a drip tray so the water just runs off into the bottom tray and most of the time i just leave it there and it will evaporate off so i'm figuring if i just take out the drip trays and throw down some hydroton or some sort of rock um, the drip tray at the bottom of the tent is watertight so if there's any water sitting in there the roots would grow out the bottom of the pot and be able to have access to it versus just letting it evaporate yeah, so, I think that'll work. 
there's my potential experiment, but I'm curious if the roots would grow together and maybe I wouldn't be able to pick them up and move them out at that point. So there may be some drawbacks, but it, it is very interesting. And I like how Abolish has talked about how little he has to go through and actually water because you fill up that res and they take up the water as they need it. And then you go back through and then fill it up. I think that's a pretty appealing way to uh, garden at home, keeping it simple with organics as I already am, just giving pure water only the whole time. It would make it way easier if you didn't have to move them. If you could keep them in there and just flower in there. But yeah, having to move them is going to be weird. Because if you get a lot of root growth down there, it could grab onto a lot of that hydrogen. You'd be walking around with this giant mass below, trying not to, hoping they're not breaking off. I mean, it wouldn't be terrible, but I mean, depending on how much root mass, it could really do some slow your plant down quite a bit. I, I technically don't have to take them out once I put them in the flower room and they're in those three-gallon pots. It's just occasionally like on... Uh, days where I like to clean up any like dead or lower leaf or do some uh, cleaning up of that bottom. Uh, it's nice to be able to pop them out, sit them up uh, somewhere that's like table height. So I'm not bending over and hurting my back and I could see them at like eye level and things like that. I just so. can't imagine doing that after the stretch or sort of even during the stretch, my plants get big. They would be physically damaged if I tried to move them out of the tent. You don't, you don't have problems with sort of actually breaking branches and stuff like that. Well, the, my tent is a three feet by 1.67 feet, which I know is a weird dimension, uh, but it's inside of a coat closet. Uh -huh. And basically I could reach my arm straight out to the back of the tent and there's three plants just sitting side by side by side. So I take the middle one out first that comes straight out the tent. And my plants would be kind of holding each other up and sort of using each other for support and stuff like that, or using some sort of um, support structure. Um, so I never, I mean, I don't even consider that as, as sort of one of the things I think about in setting up a grow. I, in, once they go into final containers, I barely even will move the final containers within the, the grow tent. And uh, oftentimes you really don't need to as long as you can access to yeah. like remove any leaf and thing like that. And uh... Yeah, but I think a lot of people try, really try to design a grow thinking that they need to remove the plants from it but i mean I, I don't think there's a real reason it is harder to train them or to get in there and prune them i, I mean i understand some of the benefit to that um but it, you know once the plants reach a certain size it's dangerous to be moving them around and they don't really like to be moved around all that much i agree one trick is if you do move them around i keep my plant tags in the same spot of the pot every time so i know the orientation of the plant because when I first started doing this, I didn't do that. And I would go, oh, fuck, like, how does this one? It's sort of like uh, playing that game where the blocks are falling down, Tetris. And you're trying to, like, weave them into the tiny-ass tent. Because I try to grow my plants as big as I can in my tiny-ass space. And uh, sometimes it gets really, really bunched up, as you can see, if you check out my page. And just trying to get that most uh, yield out of the smallest quantity of space as possible. So it works for me, and I haven't had any powdery mildew knock on wood over two years of cultivating in a tiny little space and overpacking the room. So I'm trying my best. we got about a half an hour left. I don't know if I'm seeing this incorrectly or maybe uh, it's like the preview, but it looks like Michigan Bros. Grow Show already went live. I don't know. Well, they're just going to have to wait for me. I'm not leaving yet. Don't go yet. Don't go yet. We're not done yet. Oh, sorry. It was a video <laughs> I got from earlier. It was the Wake and Bake uh, subscription notification. Sorry. False alarm. False alarm, everybody. How's I guess I could fill in this. Um, there's this uh, comment 
uh, shout out to the comments section. You guys are you guys are smart people. Ask good questions. Let's just put it that way. And I would rather have a, a more curated group of people who are asking really cool, interesting questions um, than whatever the reverse of that would be. But the question is talking mostly about chitinase and chitin, and that's a big. I just want to clarify something that chitin is a it's a polymer. Did look it up. I was right. It's a it's a it's a polymer. So it's a combination of of uh, <laughs> of substances, I suppose. It's a it's a protein, right? A lot of things are proteins. It's kind of not. It's ambiguous to just say it's a protein, I suppose. But chitinase is an enzyme that breaks down the protein. And hey, so, just to be devil's advocate, where do we find chitin, Matt? Yeah, sorry about that. So chitin can be found um, pretty ubiquitously in nature. Uh, arthropod bodies, so insects and mites and that sort of a thing. Uh, their whole their exoskeletons are made out of chitin. A lot of their body structures are made out of chitin. Um, fungi are the other ones that have chitin in their cell uh, bodies and their cells. So a plant, uh, as part of their immune response, will produce chitinase. Possibly it's different ones at different rates for different reasons, stimulated by different stimuli. Um, right. Basically, the plant senses the chitin and feels like it's under attack or it's, it's you know, evolved to respond that that's a, some sort of insect attack and it, it produces the, those uh, chitinase as a response. Absolutely. So, right. But wait, um, but the, the uh, thing that uh, Potent Ponics made. It, how did it work? It ate the skeleton because it was chitin, so the, that specific fungi or bacteria ate the skeleton of the bugs? He didn't go into it with me. He said he wanted to talk to it with Matthew, but uh, he didn't get into the details with me, so I pretty much told you what I could remember of the conversation. We'll, <laughs> we'll, have, to do a, we'll have to do a crossover. Yeah, he offered to come on the show, so it, it will happen soon. We will have these questions answered, chat, and uh, everyone on the panel. So look oh, out for I that. thought that's kind of what, what uh, Matthew was getting at. Because... Well, what I was getting at was that basically there's two possibilities. If it's, I was saying it's plausible, sort of, that either the chitinase enzyme was produced in abundance and that the, it was mainly the chitinase, the, the exposure to the chitinase that might have had a deleterious effect on the insects because in some cases the chitinase doesn't outright kill organisms. Um, in some plants they produce chitinase, the chitinase creates um, holes in their intestinal tract and then they die of sepsis from the microbes within. So the chitinase doesn't like outright kill it like a poison would. Um, but it's also possible that those microbes were also there and maybe it was a dual effect of chitinase plus those microbes that would normally have like maybe parasitized the uh, the grasshoppers. So there's two possibilities really. So possibly three in combination. Well, and there was a, a locust, right? And isn't that's a flying insect? So maybe is there something that it could have done to the wings or something that in, impacted? Like because if it's chitinase is breaking down the chitin at maybe just like the joint of its wing and making it unable to fly or, or move effectively or something like that. Yeah, that's also a possibility too. But I'd feel like you'd need, I mean, from a phys like from a chemistry perspective, I think you need quite a bit of that enzyme to have that effect. And like, that's an extremely large amount. Um, 
So I don't think that that's what likely happened. So does, it's more likely the other way. bioaccumulate inside the the insects? Is that how it ends up affecting their digestive systems, Matt? So it depends a little bit on like a, a few factors, but usually when microbes uh, produce it, it's because they like are virulent. And so they infect, they use the chitinase, they produce the chitinase to sort of like enter into the body. Um, sometimes they're eaten like as, as in like a spore state or something like that. They're consumed somehow and then they start from the inside out. Um, does that answer the question? I think so. I feel like there was a part, what was the question? Say it again. Um, I was I'm still sort of like swimming around, putting, putting all the pieces of this picture together. I don't remember exactly what I asked you. That's okay. Um, asking whether the uh, what was basically the mode of action. Oh yeah, does it accumulate? So you were saying that it, it affects their digestive system. It could eat holes in the insects' um, intestines. I was wondering if if they needed sort of that level of exposure that would build up in the gut as opposed to just sort of having it come into contact with their exoskeletons. It's kind of like a very weak, like it's not this, but it's sort of like you would imagine a very weak acid. Like if you yeah. put your hand in rubbing alcohol, you know, for a little bit of time, it's going to dry off and it won't damage your skin too much usually. But if you leave it in there for a very long time, eventually you're going to have some problems. Um, oh, so take it out now. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, so they're hard. They're, their exoskeletons actually got layers even. Um, so basically the chitinase would be much more damaging if it was ingested. Um, and I think it would have to be in contact with the insect, which a lot of insects are very hygienic, um, at least for themselves, for that reason, because a lot of things like spores and stuff can just like land on your body and you're in a suit of armor and, um, it's very hard to clean yourself. So you either make secretions or you like scrape your body and like, then you kind of eat whatever's on there and you rely on your your uh, body to kind of break down whatever you take in but that doesn't always work very well um like i illustrated with the spores getting taken up exactly through that pathway they don't cook their food right so everything's raw <laughs> right. cool well i think we have a better sense of chitin and chitinase thanks yeah Treehouse Cannabis asks, how often do you guys feed? And in my case, uh, never. I just give water the whole time. Just unless you count water as feeding. Um, just an organic soil that has enough in there, start to finish, that you can just water all the way. We could argue that you feed once when you prepare the soil, probably. Yeah, one big dose. One, one buffet. One big dose at the beginning. Yeah, I feed five times a day. Fertigate, so pretty low doses of uh, fertilizers dissolved in the water, uh, high frequency fertigation. What about you, Noah? I typically uh, will do uh, once a day, usually for about 10 days and then just mix of water only. But, you know, I have a, a regiment that I've, you know, built and uh, fine tuned over years, but I, I'm constantly, you know, messing with it. And it also depends on what stage the plants are when I flip them. Like I just recently flipped three plants in fives and I normally just do two in sevens and I gave them what I was doing the sevens and I burned them a little bit. So you have to kind of just fine tune it. 
you know, as you go. You can make mistakes too, like I just said. So, Do you measure EC or PPM at all, or are you just going off milliliters from your bottles that you're comfortable with? I do both, but I mainly just do milliliters. Um, I have done it, but I've just been so, um, you know, I've got it to where I, I usually have it pretty much down because I've done it so many times. But, you you know, I have a PPM reader that I do the measure the runoff sometimes, but I usually just go by kind of eyeballing it over the years, you know. I feel that 100%. A lot of people actually are very successful doing that, and it saves them time in measuring things once they get to know a comfortable range that works for their plants that works well. Now, Spartan Grown, I wanted to ask you um, at work versus at um, home, what are the fertigation schedules like, and how is it different? Okay, so at home, it's I'm very similar to you. Actually, I think we use the same mix even, yep. but uh, I top dress. And so I would say... I just did some worm castings too. <laughs> okay. And so I would say that I can't give you a number because I just watch the plant. And if a plant needs something, I address that with a top dress. Um, so I will say that maybe in a plant's life, it would be anywhere between zero top dresses to four, maybe at the most. And then uh, at work, that's a totally different game. We're not growing in soil. So we're growing in cocoa. We have to give the plant all the nutrition. So every watering is a feed until the end of the, the end of its life where we're flushing. how many waterings per day do you guys typically run or does we it depend do. on cycle no it doesn't uh we never feed more we never water more than once a day um unless it's a mom that's really big we might water them twice but um we're in five gallon pots so we have bigger we we chose the bigger pots to make it so that we didn't have to automate the watering schedules we want people there all when it waters so we're just watering and we don't water every day sometimes it might be two days it might be it might be a day in between sometimes it's not every day what indicates that you need to water we pick up the pots we walk through at the whole room and we pick up the pots and okay do you have a a sense of what level of saturation you want the pots to be in before you water again yes yeah what what is that it's like I, I couldn't tell you. I can I can show you if you if you want to come out there. I say pick up that one. That's well, the water. Well, I, mean, here, I, I mean, I'll give you some basic. We don't we don't have a measurement other than weight. Um. Okay. So if the pot is completely saturated, um, need water. Right. It wouldn't need water. Uh, the the vast majority of the weight that you're picking up is the water. So how much lighter is it when you go ahead to water? Is it half as heavy? So and how do you been, compensate for the, the weight of the plant? <laughs> so, like, okay, so it's just the skill that you, you learn as, yeah, yeah. Uh, as a grower your whole life, I guess. I don't know, but... Um, Before the leaves start to droop. Well, it's just an interesting way to but, water cocoa. But, but what I'll say, what I'll say is, is that we go in, and it's also like you feel out the room, too, because you have um, 140 plants in there. So right. you go in there, and if it feels like half the room needs to be watered well then you're going to go ahead and water right because, but if you know if there was four pots that needed water in a 140 plant room you hand water the four pots you don't set off the irrigation you know for four pots and change all the little spikes well i mean I, I have a different approach to this so i don't think that watering in cocoa is i don't think it's the best strategy to use the the saturation percentage 
as the indication of when to water. And if you do, it would be probably a much higher percentage of saturation than you guys are, are letting your plants get to. Um, really, the, the issues, there's other issues that we need to be worried about, which is the electrical conductivity and making that sort of stay in a, in a constant range. Um, and well, that's really that, impacted oh, by in the soil. You mean in the actual medium? And the cocoa, yeah. Well, they check yes. the runoff uh, EC every single time, right? So you guys know what's going in and what's coming out, and you make sure it's within that proper range? Yeah, it's all logged in, too, and we have it all. It's all safe. Yeah, so the longer that you wait there, the, the larger the difference will be between the info and the runoff um, electrical conductivity. Um, the reason that that strategy of watering um, became sort of prominent is for soil when at field capacity there's insufficient oxygen so you don't want to water again too frequently um, but there's really no downside to watering cocoa again too frequently um, except for the cost of water you don't end up using more water though unless you're increasing both the, the quantity and leaving the same duration um, you water to runoff, which means you're basically just topping off. So if you can think of this as topping off, the two strategies of growing are very similar to driving a car across country. I was just going to say the exact same thing. I was one person, like... yeah, one person could drive, you know, until they're almost out of gas and then fill up again and then drive until they're almost out of gas. They're not using any more or any less gas than the person that stops in every town and fills up their tank again and, and runs between three quarters full and a full tank all of the time. Um, that's one of the big misconceptions about high frequency fertigation is that it uses a lot more water. It, it really doesn't. In both styles of growing, the vast majority of the water that we use is actually taken up by the plant. Um, and the plant takes up sort of the water that's available to it. So to the extent that we use water more, it's either because the plant is able to use water more efficiently and a higher frequency of fertigation, um, or some growers may get sloppy and end up with uh, you know, too much runoff. And if you have too much runoff and you're increasing the, the quantity of events, um, but if you're really sort of dialed in on these things, the amount of runoff is the same, whether you do it once a day or whether you do it five times a day. And the amount of inflow is the same too. I will say that I think that the lifting the pots method, that's an old school method that's tried and true. I know a lot of old school growers yeah. who do it that way. Smart. You're not it's a soil method. <laughs> that's my only point. It's, it's appropriate for soil. There's no, there's no prog uh, descriptive reason to do that in cocoa no. because there's I, never I, a point. My point, I guess, I guess what you're missing is, is the point is, is scale. You, you don't, you're not. And you want to be there to water. You cannot, you cannot micromanage the the moisture level of a single Don't micromanage pot. it. You set up a, a, a fertigation system that allows you to not have to pay really any attention. I would argue that you guys are over-investing labor and resources in irrigation um, so. by doing it by hand like that, really not by going to a higher frequency. You mean... Yeah, they I just want to be there to watch it water. No, do you sure yeah, do you understand how, off. how much of a cost that would be to... Um, we would have to get a sensor for 140 pots and you don't six need rows. sensors though. That, that's the point that's just sort of, so you're just going to, you're just going to, you're just going to guess on the moisture level and assume don't that need to pay watering at the right time. Level. You don't need to pay attention to the moisture level. I would argue that you can overwater, you can overwater even in cocoa, especially if you're in a five gallon pot. I would argue you can. 
Not if there's enough perlite in there. If you have good drainage set up, you can't. Yeah. If wow. there was Spartan, I would overwater my plants every time I grow. And so would all the growers on my forum that get really excellent results following this strategy. There's I have to throw out there, I think there's a fringe benefit results. that we're not discussing is the dry, the dry cycle. Because there's people like Stuckies who won the SoCal Grow Off who does hand water once a day in cocoa, just like Spartan did. Yeah. And, and they're having great performance at, at Mitten Canico. I mean, they have stuff testing over 30% and they're yeah, hitting yeah. three a light with the GMO. So I think that both strategies can definitely work. And yeah, I, I will agree that my strategy is really about growing plants as quickly as possible. And to the extent that there are some stressful things that you can do to the plant to increase cannabinoids and terpenes, that, that is a variation from sort of the strategy that I set up, which is really just about keeping the plant as happy as possible. And we've talked a lot about the, the potential benefits of uh, dry cycle or dry stressing, Jack. I, I think that there are some. Um, so that's an important caveat. But I think that those there's reasons to sort of bring that into uh, a strategy that keeps the plants as happy as possible all of the time. Well, and I also know people who've done it both ways, like Wolverine Grower. He was a high-frequency fertigation guy, and then he started running, instead of like five a day, three a day, and then he started doing two a day because he liked to let it get a little bit drier between. And it's just, I think, sometimes it comes down to personal preference. And, it could and come down to the do... nutrients that you're using, too. It could, it, so there's some other things that could be involved there. But I, I don't think, and this is an important sort of message that I send out about how to grow in cocoa, um, what we really need to pay attention for for watering it isn't the degree of saturation and cocoa really runs the best when it's pretty close to fully saturated. My cocoa never gets more than 10% um, dehydrated basically 10% off of um, field capacity and the plants grow really, really fast in those situations. Now, if you wanna do other things during the flowering period to provoke cannabinoids and terpenes, I think that that's fun stuff to experiment with. Um, but I don't think that there's a, there's a justification fundamentally for um, fertigating cocoa in a general rule in terms of uh, by degree of saturation. I just wanted to throw I something out there too. That control, man. It's really just control. I don't want to give seed control to a machine to make sure that the pH is right for the entire night while I'm not there. I'm not going to control a res sitting a res sitting out a res sitting there. The pH will move just sitting in a res for a long period of time. I kind of I kind of agree with both of you. I, I see your point though, Spartan. That like essentially what you're saying is that sometimes the plan doesn't work kind of right is that right to say let's look at this he has 140 plants and they fertigate once a day that's 140 fertigations if they were going to fertigate five times a day that's 700 fertigations so there's 700 opportunities where the drippers can fail versus 140 opportunities where the drippers can yeah, fail per day so if Spartan's team is there watching it once day. a day I'll, 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 I'm kind I'll, of more, that's kind of more what i was trying to get at is is like it's more low tech yes but it's also more foolproof, fail proof. I got fail proof. Jungle boys do the same thing. I just want to throw that out there. And, and that's one of the things that, even though they have automated watering, people were making fun of them, calling them crazy, laughing at them because I said we still have people there watching it, even though it's automated. And I think that there's something to, to that, even yeah. if you're doing high frequency fertigation, having people there, if you can, uh, during all the fertigations would be ideal to make sure if one of those spigots comes <laughs> popping off and starts spraying nutrient water all over your room, somebody can turn off that line. Uh, where yeah, if we just, just don't camera. have the coverage to do that. We don't have people there. Yeah. We, don't, we only have a crew of five people. 
and that's where the setup I, I you, with, you know what you've got and you're working with it to the best of your abilities and actually we're down uh, to four people we don't even have five we're down to four people i work with a greenhouse grower cut flowers um they have a hydroponic system and it's not cocoa it's rock wool but you know they you know all the time they have plants that the the spitters fail or somebody didn't put it in right so i guess i think the logistical argument's valid but i definitely agree with the more like physics-based point that i feel like you're making dr mj yeah and even even then i mean even if you're going to do once daily fertigation um really what what sparked my curiosity in this whole line of questioning was the the fact that you said sometimes we don't even do it once a day and i think that that that's really the point where I have to disagree with the the reason that you're not doing it on that day that you're not doing it then. Uh, You know, I advise growers all the time that want to set up once daily fertigation. And you're right, you use slightly larger pots, you usually have to run a slightly lower inflow to account for a larger natural rise, and they still get excellent results with once daily fertigation. But there's absolutely nothing there on that day that would indicate not to water that day and if you're if you're not watering because of um degree of saturation i I think that that's just a metric that i I don't know the justification for paying attention to that metric let's put it that way maybe not enough aeration i would say is the only possibility if if they don't have enough that's really that's literally why we're using cocoa though um especially cocoa mixed with perlite and five gallons is not such a large container that it's going to create those kinds of conditions very Especially on well, Spartan, I know you're you're gonna have to run. I've, and... I've done I've done five gallon yeah, me too. plants with five times daily fertigation without ever having any kind of even remote issues related to lack of oxygen in the root zone, the the condition that everybody calls overwatering. And I've watered the plants at work, and we get great results too. So I guess we'll di- agree to disagree, man. It works for me. But hey, I got to go, guys. Yeah, absolutely, Spartan. Absolutely. It's just an yeah. interesting conversation and right. a bunch of things. And I think that there's lots of different ways to do this. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I'm sure my growth style is going to change, I'm sure, in a fucking every day. So, you know, I'm always trying to learn. So, hey, guys, I got to go, though. I'm getting real close up to the, the next show. And uh, I got a cookie to eat. So, uh, yeah, guys. you did really well with the first cookie, man. <laughs> I, 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 I hope I hope we're all good. I didn't mean to just. Oh yeah, I'm good. I give you a hard time too much on this show. I think. Nah, give be, me a hard time. Be you, man. Be you, man, and keep on growing. Have a good one, man. Grower loves. No other grower is gonna peace out now too, that. as well. I think you said you had to get going. Shout out to Chat too. I don't want to forget them. I kind of ignored them today. Sorry, guys. I had to get some work done, so uh, I'll get I'll, I'll be extra attentive next week. <laughs> Growers love guys. Happy to growing. Yeah, I'm going to get out of here too. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Jack, Dr. Coco, Sink Angel, Spartan Grown, uh, everyone here uh, had a great time. Everybody stay safe and everybody have a great night. You too, Noah. Thank you so much for joining us. And Doc and uh, Spartan, if, if you hear this after the fact, I think um, although sometimes those moments might feel tense or whatever and people are disagreeing and it's way easier just to agree with everybody and rah-rah, have a good time or as love or whatever. I think when we have those moments where people do disagree and have a discussion like that, I've actually had people in the DMs tell me like, oh man, 
that back and forth was amazing. Like that was the best yeah. part of the show or like, you know, some people really love that stuff. So I'm happy that we dive deep into uh, those. Rabbit I holes hope and... so. I hope everybody really, I mean, and that's how I was, I was taking it. I thought that that would be an interesting way to sort of really probe deeper into those issues and, and think deeper into it. I've always been interested in the management that they do there. Um, I hear nothing about good sort of results from them. So I'm naturally curious by that. Um, but yeah, that's, there's, there's a lot of love between me and Spartan, hopefully, at least from my end. So I don't, I don't mean to be sort of rude or caustic or any of that. It's all in the pursuit of, of learning and understanding. I think, well, it I, have a question. Back, I think it harkens back to what we were saying earlier about, or maybe even myself, which is why I remembered it so well, uh, sort of the memes versus genes, inconsistencies of things it doesn't mean it's not we're not making a right wrong statement necessarily although some things might be a little bit more or less objective than others it seems like but I definitely agree it, it definitely creates an interesting like what we were talking about with pollen and um, replication and like the unique challenges of cannabis that came away because we talked about physiology and we talked about um, other people's experiences that were sort of anecdotal too so it's a nexus, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there's a, I mean, there's a difference between sort of understanding the, the underlying science and then what you do with it and how you choose to then put it into management practice. Um, and there's a great deal of room for interpretation at, at that level as well, right? So. All right, so well, you have I have a question. question. Yeah, yeah, go, go. We're, we're not going to cut it off short. I want to hear the question and we'll air it All out right. and then we'll do the sign off. Okay, yeah. Is the difference is that uh, Spartan just putting five times the amount of water in once a day and Coco's yeah. doing it five times a day? And the second question is, yes, if your I, pump I fails... Yes, I think so. That, that's, all right, if your pump fails, how damaged will your plants be in one day compared to Spartan's maybe? You know, that might make a difference it as well, right? It depends on how long it would be before I, I noticed. And I think you're right. I think a pump failure is probably the, the biggest risk. Um, and I think that if I was doing it in a really large scale, um, I agree, having somebody there to monitor it would, would be ideal. Um, the mm -hmm. other thing that would be ideal would be to still mix the, the res for that event, um, not maintain a, a reservoir between events, if that makes sense. So um, that's still a pretty hands-on process, but then you just sort of flip a switch and let the, the pumps deliver the water to the plants. Um, you could go around and take a few runoff EC samples to make sure everything's still sort of running properly like that. Very, very well addressed, Dr. MJ and, and Brandon. I know you didn't get a chance to answer this earlier, and I'm actually just kind of curious about your answers. How often do you feed your plants? And then we'll do our sign off. Mm, so my, it's really interesting because I could actually go on a little, a while about this because, uh, I, Give me I the actually, elevator pitch. The, I the, you saturate, got 30 seconds to a minute. I saturate my, my soil completely. Um, and the reason I'm able to do this is because I'm using probiotics. My soil is filled with uh, beneficial microorganisms. They actually drop the pH of the soil pretty low um, on many occasions. So what I'll do is I'll do a complete saturation with runoff. And then the next watering the next day, I'll usually do um, just a, uh, uh, top off it just to make sure that the water uh, the pots can stay very wet um, and the reason I'm able to do this is because I have a massive amount of aeration in my soil so what happens is even when my soil is saturated 
it's still loose and it allows for maximum gas exchange. Thank you so much for uh, elaborating on that because I know you have a very interesting soil mix and you've got things like cover crop and or crop cover, whatever you want to call it. Uh, a lot of good stuff going on and it's a different approach than people that are fertigating with nutrients, for example, and even a different approach than myself who is using an organic mix and just giving water. And, uh, it, it's, it's actually crop concealment um, because it only gives you concealment. <laughs> That's a tactical joke. Sorry. Uh, I get you. I get you. I used to wear a ghillie suit when I play paintball, so I appreciate the uh, concealment. <laughs> with that being said, I think we've had a pretty great two hours of cannabis conversation, and I want to give a big shout out and thank you to everybody in the live chat, as well as the people who listen to the show afterwards. Uh, thank you to Cheap Home Grow, who provided this platform for us to stream live to. Uh, thank you to the panel members who joined, everybody uh, that came predicative breeding earlier you can find him at pbreeding.com he um, maybe got disconnected or was had to leave before he was able to say goodbye and didn't want to interrupt so shout out to him and then next i'll give it off to uh dr mj to give his sign off hey yeah thanks that was a, a fun episode i get uh i'll try to make sure that i keep my enthusiasm for certain topics a little bit dialed in but uh it was mainly just enthusiasm on that one um I, yeah we had a bunch of fun conversations today so this is a, a good show hopefully everybody in the chat have been sort of following along with the chat enjoyed it um thanks to spartan and all the rest of the the panelists out there matt jack everybody's been great um, come on over and visit us at CocoForCannabis.com. Um, I mentioned in chat, I'm going to start doing uh, grow light testing, probably not this week, probably next week, although I'm starting to get fixtures in. So I'm going to do um, at least three or four in the next couple of weeks and, and post those up. So I'll be looking forward to talking about that, but uh, got a full grow light guide, a bunch of other stuff. So come on over to Cocoa for Cannabis. Thanks again for joining us and uh, definitely make sure to check him out on his website. I go there semi-often to help cocoa growers and give them good guides that I know are reliable that have helped dozens of other growers that I've given those exact same guides to in the past. So thank you, Dr. MJ, for all that you put out there and continue to do. Next up, we have Matthew Gates. I also really enjoyed this particular session. Um, I thought it had really great uh, dialogues between multiple panel members, including myself. And um, the chat also was alive with really cool comments. So if you are interested in what I was talking about with like physiology and evolution and, and pests and integrated pest management and how that all kind of comes together, you can find me at uh, my website, zentanol.com. Uh, you can find me at YouTube channel Zentanol, which is the same channel that I was commenting in. And also you can find me at Sync Angel, where I produce a lot of content as well. Um, and thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. I'm a, a viewer of that content. I saw you just posted some of the hours of viewed content that people have been watching throughout the whole quarantine, which is pretty cool to see those numbers rising. I'm happy for you to have more people put eyes on that content that you worked so, so hard on and uh, take a, the time to make good quality content for us all. So thank you for that. Next up, we've got Brandon Rust. Oh, I wanted to say, uh, Stabby McStabwood gave me a good reminder in the chat. If you're here, make sure you hit that thumbs up button. We had like 70 viewers earlier and only uh, 25 thumbs up when I went to hit the thumbs up button on my personal account. So make sure you do that before you go over to Michigan Bros Bro Show and listen to the rest of the sign off. So next we got Brandon, how you doing?
Yo, what up? Um, thanks for having me. I, uh, you know, I always enjoy coming on and talking, talking about weed stuff. <laughs> um, uh, my name is Brandon Russ. You guys can find me. Most of you guys already follow me, but you can find my account at Russ.Brandon. Um, there's some really cool stuff coming up. I'm going to have some business partnerships with uh, Green Waste Recycling, with Okashi Earthworks. I'm hopefully purchasing a dispensary license and hopefully uh, scaling a large farm here. So uh, you guys can follow along and watch all the adventure unfold. Um, and thanks to all the panel members and I'll see everybody next week. Thanks again for joining us, Brandon, and I'll send good vibes your way. And I know that you are really dedicated to your work and you're going to manifest uh, good, positive things out of all those things that you were just talking about. You have a lot of opportunities in front of you. And I think um, many of the ones that you've already found yourself in are because you're a hard worker and you've got passion and love for the plant and this field. So shout out to you and having that passion and, and keep driving forward and, and following your heart and doing what you love. Thanks, dude. Appreciate it. We'll see you next week. And next up and final person to give their sign off before I do is Tao. How you doing? Hello, Jack Greenstock. Great. Thanks for hosting. Shout out to the entire panel. Shout out to Shane and uh, shout out to chat. It's always great being here. It's always great hanging in chat. And uh, yeah, it was great tonight. I think it was a great night as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Tao, the American one. Eagle always says that you sound like Vin Diesel. I see it a little bit, that New York uh, accent. I got to love it. I'm going to do something that Eagle does, a page out of his book at the end of the show. Just scroll through and shout out Monkey Do, Sean Paul, Smot Poker, Grow Green, Adam T.A., Trey Valone, Aldrich25, Stabby McStabwood, and Felix Q. Uh, those are the names that came up quickest in the chat for me. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all of you and everybody else who joined the chat this evening. You can find me personally on Instagram most often, which isn't even that often, but I'm mainly answering DMs at Jack Greenstock. You can find me on Cannabis, which is a cannabis-friendly social media app. I saw some people in the previous week saying, what's Cannabis? It was made by some Dude Grow show community members, and they wanted a place where they wouldn't have to worry about their cannabis content getting deleted because a lot of Instagram accounts do get deleted for posting cannabis because it's still federally illegal, even though it's legal in the state of California where Facebook hosts their headquarters. Um, it's a little bit contradictory and can be really annoying at times. And you see some really big pages, uh, breeders and cannabis companies get taken down. So it can be frustrating. So shout out to Cannabuzz. You can find me on there at Jack Greenstock. Lastly, you can find me on Twitter, which uh, is a very interesting community. I like the people over there. It's a different place, but a lot of uh, good information gets passed around and there's a lot of cool people socializing and normalizing cannabis. So shout out to Twitter. I'm there at Jack underscore Greenstock. And that's about as long as I can mumble on. I also have my own podcast that there's three episodes of. It's called Green Stock Talks. And if you'd like to check that out, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review. Same with this show. So and that, with that all being said, thank everybody for coming. This is Jack Greenstock signing off. Peace. Our love.